0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest today is David Hoffmeister. I'm going to read uh, sort of an official little bio of David, a short one, and then an unofficial one that somebody sent me, which I think is interesting and amusing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) David began his journey to spiritual enlightenment in 1986 when he encountered A Course in Miracles and recognized it as the tool he had been seeking for a radical transformation of his mind and perceptions. In the early years, David studied the Course with passionate intensity, often reading it for eight or more hours a day. After two years of this study, David began to seek the company of other students of A Course in Miracles, attending as many as five groups a week. He was startled to find that a voice was speaking through him with great authority, so that many began referring their questions to him. Among family members, friends, and teachers, David was always known for questioning everything rather than accepting conventional answers. Thus he was delighted to find in the Course support and encouragement from the voice of Jesus for his careful examination of every idea, belief, concept and assumption in his mind. Jesus became David's internal teacher, answering his every question, guiding him to hand over the day-to-day management of all relationships, circumstances and events in his life and providing inner discernment." So there's more to that, but that's on David's website. Now here's the the unofficial (laughs) bio. Uh, if somebody sent me this. A unique mystic who teaches a Course in Miracles. He says he has taken part in miracles, including the raising of the dead. He will be interesting because he is not coming from the pop Advaita world of truisms, and he addresses such questions. A very sincere teacher, I believe. Yeah, I heard David Hofmeister mention raising the dead in a podcast on one of his recent videos. He's got plenty of far-out stories to tell, and I guess from a pure Course in Miracles perspective, it's not beyond the realm of possibility, as the Course states. Nothing real can be threatened, nothing unreal exists. Herein exists, herein lies the peace of God, which sounds just like the Bhagavad Gita, which says the unreal has no being, the real never ceases to be. I think David is the type of person who will level with you no matter what you ask him about. I'm no expert in the course, but I've read and watched many purported teachers of the course, and all of them, I think, and of all of them, I think David embodies most fully the innocence and joy the course points to. He also spent years studying all kinds of spiritual traditions and academic fields, so he can match wits with the best of them. He seems to have embraced the notion of living without compromising with the world of duality. How much he's actually able to pull it off, I leave to others to decide for themselves. It seems to me he sticks to his guns better than most." (laughs) So that's the unofficial bio. That's very interesting. That's a good one to start with. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Obviously, people are going to be curious about this Raising the Dead business, but I think maybe it would make more sense first to start with a, some really fundamental questions. And, and I hope in the course of this interview we cover all the bases so that somebody who knows relatively nothing about A Course in Miracles like myself will find something in, in it of value, and teachers in Course of Miracles you know, who are well versed in it will find something of value. So mm. hopefully we'll cover the whole gamut. But let's start with a really simple, basic question. What is the Course in Miracles?
1: Well, it's a book that was scribed from a woman named Helen Shuckman with her, her boss uh, from Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in New York City, starting from 1965 to 1972, and the voice that's dictating it identifies himself as Jesus, or itself, because really, from a non-dual perspective, Christ is just—it's uh, not male or female, it's just the, the love, the unconditional love, agape love. So, um, it, it came in the form of a, of a text and a workbook and a manual for teachers. So these were uh, research psychologists, actually, who were taking this down shorthand and then typing it out uh, from that. So it basically uses terminology from Christianity and from psychology and from education, but clearly it's a, it's a non-dual teaching. It, it really doesn't resemble a lot of traditional Christianity, you know, the heaven and hell, and the typical things many of us were raised with in the Judeo-Christian world. I found it just intriguing, fascinating, and I think that it's, it's also very practical because I know with Advaita Vedanta and its beautiful non-dual teachings, they're very deep and penetrating and take you into this vastness that the scientists call like the quantum field, but this actually has a, a text which kind of sets you up with the theory. The theology. Then it's got a workbook that you practice day by day to actually have that transformation of consciousness. And then once you really get in touch with it, you know your people will be drawn to you inevitably when you're happy and clear and joyful. Like with a lot of teachers, and then it actually has some questions that that teachers face, Um, a lot of teachers face that are non dual teachers. So I found it very very helpful in my journey.
0: Yeah. So these folks who I guess channeled or cognized it, whatever we would say. This was pretty outside their comfort zone, right? I mean, what they were like professional psychologists and weren't really into esoteric things or religious things so much.
1: Yes, very much so. Uh, Helen Schuckman was very a brilliant psychologist. Also, her partner, kind of doing this, uh, William Thetford, he had been uh, a graduate assistant of Carl Rogers, hmm. um, so a little bit of humanistic tendencies. Whereas she was more of atheistic. So you can imagine. Um, channeling something that's talking about God and Christ and Holy Spirit from an atheist. Uh, she had a, a little bit of, uh, they both had a little touch of Christian science come into their background a little bit, so it probably wasn't completely foreign, but it it was very threatening and actually during the dictations, that's why it took seven years, They were, she was so anxious about it that oftentimes the voice would say, what I said was this, what she wrote was that. (laughs) So the voice had to keep going back and redoing sentences, and uh, she had a lot of resistance, so that's why I think it took seven years to do the whole thing.
0: Interesting. And so you said, well, that it was supposedly Jesus, but then that sort of implies a kind of an individuated form, and really we're talking about agape or love, which is some kind of more of a universal field, I guess. Let's dwell on that for a little bit. I could ask more of a question, but go ahead and respond to that bit.
1: Yeah, the voice identified itself as Jesus, and of course there's so many channeled writings. I mean, my gosh, I've come across so many channelings of you know, Jesus and Saint Germain and, and just an enormous number of characters throughout history, Moses and so forth. I had read quite a lot and I was just amazed at this, but it actually started referring to, it would say, the apostles and it would refer to things, not so much in a historical context, but it would refer to miracles and it would really give a huge clarification of things that a lot of Christians and non-dual teachers would, would want to know. Actually at some point it started using Shakespearean blank verse and it's like, I don't know, over half, maybe two-thirds of the book was just came through in Shakespearean blank verse. Which is a and,
0: certain rhythm or Like iambic pentameter or something, but um, yes, yeah, that kind
1: of thing. Exactly, Mm exactly. And Helen Schuckman was a big Shakespeare fan, so it seems like Jesus, in this sense, was using things that that she could relate to with Mm -hmm. psychology and educational terms and some Christian terms. And then, oh, it had poetry in it and amazing things. It seemed to be using what she was interested in, but the content was just amazing, and it basically referred to uh. Parable of Prodigal Son, and so forth, and so that kind of gave it the flavor of Jesus, in yeah. coming from Jesus.
0: So it sounds like you're saying that you're not you're not sort of dead set on the idea that it was the historical Jesus, you know, whoever that was, that was actually conveying this information. You know, you're not like hanging your whole thing on that, but it, but that whatever this source was, <laughs> you know, it was some kind of fundamental cosmic intelligence or something, and it. It spoke to her in a language that she could understand. And it also seems like, you know, someone might say, well, if she was really into Shakespeare, then she had sort of that way of that kind of verse hard, wired into her brain. And so this, she might have just been a. A filter through which it was expressed in that terminology, and obviously, if she had been Japanese, it wouldn't have been coming through in English. It would have been she would have been writing it down in Japanese. So, you know, her in, and you, you get that a lot with the whole channeling world. To what extent is the channeler coloring what's coming through, or is it you know are they really a pure vessel, and and it's it's some whatever they're supposed to be channeling that's actually that you're actually hearing when you listen to them?
1: Yeah, exactly. I have listened and read and, and you know, followed a lot of different channelings and everything, so I do feel like this essence that's coming through, it's Jesus all right, except that as with non-dual teachers, um, you know, as you go through a transformation in consciousness, you start to realize that you aren't the personality self, mm. uh, you aren't the body, and you really never were, um, but that was something that was a tool, a vehicle that was part of your training, uh, training consciousness and opening up. So, I think that it speaks in first person and identifies itself as Jesus. So, I don't have any doubt about that in my mind. It was more of an internal confirmation. I could really feel it. But also, for if people don't believe it's Jesus, it's such an effective tool for people that don't even believe in Jesus as uh, the Messiah or whatever. If they do, it may help them undo some biases and uh, ego. Uh, distortions. I think if they don't, I think I've heard Buddhist and a lot of non-dual um, teachers and and students say that they get a lot of value out of the course, and they don't even believe in the historical Jesus. So yeah, it's, not necessary. For itself.
0: Yeah. Right. What do you think about other channeled or cognized works, or I mean, you're smack dab in the middle of Mormon country. What you know? What do you think about the Book of Mormon and so many other things that were supposedly conveyed from angels or Deeper sources in the universe, I mean, do you pretty much have an open mind to the veracity of all of them or what
1: yeah i 've come across a lot of them, like the Mormons uh, mystic w- was joseph smith and and I've read quite a lot of of, of these different uh, kind of like uh, avatars and scribes and you know really important people mm-hmm. in terms of spiritual terms and I think I, I do get resonance and value out of a lot of things, although When I came across the Course, I have to say that, like with the Mormons, they talk about, you know, there's a planet where God lives and and they've got a name for it, and a lot of things have come through. And from most spiritualities and non dual perspectives, you know, these things uh, can be even a little distractive, like, well, how do we know it's this planet or this or that? You know, people can start to laugh actually at some of those things. Not with the Course. I think when people have a sincere openness with this, the presence, I first felt when I read it, I went, whoever wrote this book is not in this world. They have completely transcended. They've been here, but they went through it so they can use the language, but they are not located in time and space, and it was a, such a strong feeling, and I don't get that with all channeled writings, but I, I did get that extremely strongly with the Course.
0: Yeah, it's it's a little bit of a confusing field for people because, as you said earlier, there are thousands of people out there who are channeling. and. You know, I've spoken to people who say they're channeling Merlin, and who knows whether Merlin was actually anything that ever existed. And there are a lot of people who say they're channeling Mary Magdalene, and and I, I interviewed a guy a few weeks ago who's very popular, um, who Daryl Anka, who channels someone named Bashar, who's some kind of extraterrestrial that he claims is himself 3,000 years from now. A future self. <laughs> a future <Okay>. self. Yeah. <laughs> so wow, it's this it's this huge field of stuff, and uh, if. I don't know, it must be a little bit perplexing for people, but we don't need to spend too much time on that. But any comments on that little point before we go on?
1: No, I think they, there's, a, there's value in many things, and I, I've been blessed by kind of doing a lot of reading in many areas. But, but then again, you have to find what really resonates and mm-hmm. lights your heart up, and I think that's the same for all of us. And I do believe there's, there's just thousands of forms of the universal curriculum, and the Course is just one of them. So in no way is it exclusive. And I like a book that says that yeah it um, comes right out and doesn't say that it's the only way, right that um, right away that resonates in my heart. Yeah, me too.
0: I mean, I wouldn't be doing this show if I didn't. and you know, every week I talk to a different person, and it sort of gives, in some cases, it gives them quite a bit of, of a boost in terms of their popularity. And uh, I'm happy to do that because I and you know, and it's funny, I'll do an interview. And I'll get emails from some people saying, that was your worst one ever, I hated that person. And emails from other people in the very same interview, that was your best interview ever, I love that. <laughs> you know, so it's like, obviously different strokes for different folks. You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah, I know. Which kind of, to me, sits well with the notion of an omniscient God who is not a one-trick pony, who can adapt himself, as it were, to everyone, regardless of their orientation. You know, they can find a niche that works for them.
1: Yeah, I really like that too. I, I really feel like whatever works, whatever really brings you peace of mind and, and takes you into this, that presence and stillness, by all means use it. Yeah. And and it should have some fun with it too. I think a lot of times I see spiritual seekers and maybe sometimes teachers that are very, very serious. Right, right. And I feel there should be like a lightness and laughter. I don't feel spirit is uh, so serious. I think there's more like a cosmic humor behind mm. this whole Maya thing
0: there's a saying in the Upanishads, contact with Brahman is infinite joy. And so if you see a person who's kind of dour and grumpy, you wonder whether they're really (laughs) contacting (laughs) Brahman. And uh, I heard you quote John Lennon's song in one of your talks, you know, whatever gets you through the night. So it kind of relates to what we're saying. All right, so the first question then was, what is the Course in Miracles? So now the next obvious question is, you know, what does the Course in Miracles teach? Let's go through some of the main points.
1: Okay, well, it's, basically summarized uh, in the introduction by saying, nothing real can be threatened, nothing unreal exists, herein lies the peace of God. It also says that free will does not mean that you can establish the curriculum, it just means that you can decide what to take at a given time. It also has some very interesting things to say in the manual, in the sense that it's basically saying that that the form of the curriculum is not even your choice, which is. Very offensive to the ego. The ego likes to think, "Well, I'll, I'll decide what I'll study.
2: Um,
1: I'm going to take this path or that path, or I'll decide my path." Uh, the course is kind of hinting that it's all part of a prearranged plan, and that something deep down inside, when we're really ready to forgive, and open our hearts up and love, the form will just be what it was. That it's, it goes into kind of destiny. That it's part of a prearranged plan, and only the time we take it, when we're really tired of of duality, when we're tired of conflict and we really feel, you know, there has to be a better way, then we're ready to uh, embark on this awakening curriculum.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point, and uh, and you see that so much. It's like as soon as long as a person feels like they can do for themselves, then there's not a kind of an openness or a readiness. And you know, when you get to kind of a your wits end, so to speak. Um, in my case, there I, there was a real bottoming out kind of period in my life. Then you're open to some kind of guidance, and and bingo, the guidance <laughs> comes.
1: Yeah, and actually the the two that brought the course, I'll say the first two Course of Miracles st- students on the planet, Helen Shuckman and Bill Thedford. The way it happened was, Bill was kind of frustrated. He was the head of the department, um, this research psychology department, and uh, he was quite frustrated one day, and he said there, he, he was giving kind of a little speech to Helen and he was saying, you know, there, there really has to be another way to live, we're living in such conflict here. Mm. And he was kind of surprised that she turned to him and said, you're right, Bill, and I'll help you find it. Oh, nice. So there was a, a little joining, a willingness, yeah. there was a willingness, that's how the actually the, that preceded the coming of the book, so it actually was very practical, it was an answer to their call for help. And I like that, you know, I like practical spirituality, I don't yeah. like this bunch of theology, I, I like
0: practicality. Yeah, me too. There's a verse in the Vedas someplace which uh, says the riches seek out him who is awake, and the riches are said to be the sort of the impulses of intelligence which govern the universe or something. I've seen this so many times, and in my own life I've, I see it where, as soon as you kind of have this willingness or this openness, it's like the powers that be say, "Okay, boys, we got a, we got a live one here. Let's give him some juice," you know? Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> I love
0: that. Yeah. Let's pick apart the first part of what you just said a minute ago, which was, nothing real can be threatened, nothing unreal exists. So what's real and what's unreal?
1: Well, it kind of implies that there is a spiritual realm, and I guess in terms of common day language, we would call it eternity, or changelessness. Just the vast experience of, some just call it spirit, and it doesn't begin, it doesn't end, it just is, it's the I Am. Like uh, Byron Katie, love what is, or uh, know what is. The present moment is the gateway to eternity. It just implies that as we approach the present moment and the presence, then we're coming closer to this eternal being. And that's really uh, what can't be threatened, is that eternal being.
0: Yeah, that verse I quoted from the Gita earlier it continues on and says, None can work the destruction of this immutable being. Yeah. And so then what's unreal?
1: Unreal would be anything that changes, and I love to study quantum physics and, and really look at the whole realm of what seems to be temporary. So I would just say a good synonym for uh, unreality is the temporal, that's the closest thing that comes to mind, because everything we perceive is always in flux, and even all the best maps of the universe with the Big Bang, they just say it's, it's really in flux and it seems to be expanding, they think it might reach a point of equilibrium and start to implode on itself, but that that movement and that change is, I would say, that's what the unreality is.
0: Okay, so by that definition, everything we see or perceive through our senses, including you and I talking to each other, is unreal.
1: Yeah, maya is a term from the East, Right. and so the
0: Course is just using coming right out and saying illusion. And you know, the the word maya actually comes from Sanskrit roots which mean which not? It means that which is not. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, that's that's exactly it. <laughs> which, which is really good because then when you get into things like judgments or preferences or levels, all those things that we deal with, mm-hmm. uh, we have in practicality, you can see that they they would be part of the not, and then the changelessness, that which is just eternal being, would be the, the what is real, what is reality. So. It's quite a high goal. It's not like uh, something of trying to reach a worldly goal or anything like that. It's just saying that you'll wake up from this dream and you'll know who you are and that reality will be eternal.
0: One problem I run into, if I want to call it a problem, is that there's a certain niche in the non-dual field or in the spiritual field which is sometimes referred to as neo-advaita. I see them committing what I consider a fallacy in the confusion of levels to a great extent. In other words, what you and I were just saying, that the world isn't real ultimately, that you know, that which changes cannot be real, I think we agree on that and understand that, and we can elaborate on it more if we wish, but sometimes people kind of extrapolate from that and apply <clears throat> that level of understanding to relative levels of concern where actually you have to kind of make a concession with on reality in order to function in the world, in order to live properly and treat others properly and so on. So I've heard people actually say, starvation in Africa, poof, you know, it's just an illusion. Or, and, and you know, my response is usually, alright, well, by the same logic, gravity is an illusion, so go up on the tall building and prove it, you know, jump off and, and see, if, see if the illusory nature of gravity has any effect on you as illusory as these more expressed, manifest levels of reality may ultimately be, you have to sort of give them their due, do you not? And kind of acknowledge or or cooperate with laws of nature or, or principles of the universe which function on various levels, even though you may understand and even experience that ultimately they haven't, nothing ever happened and they never actually arose from the unmanifest.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you're bringing that up, because to me that is practical spirituality, Spirituality has to meet consciousness where it believes it is, and so uh, the course actually says that you can't bring the truth into the illusion; you bring the illusion to the truth. In the mm. sense, you bring the darkness, the unconscious mind, all the false beliefs. You keep bringing them to the light, and and you keep practicing, doing everything very practically in your day-to-day life, but continually offering up your beliefs and your thoughts to this presence or to this light, and so. I think what you're talking about is very, very important. In fact, I've visited hundreds of Course in Miracles groups all over the world in, in these 30-some countries, and, and I would say the biggest mistake that I hear in Course in Miracles study groups is just this catchphrase: it's all an illusion. And I point back to Jesus because they, they all have a devotion for Jesus, and I'll say, look at Jesus' life. When you look at his teachings in the New Testament, you don't see him teaching this. He really, I think, corrects from the bottom up. He meets people, he's friendly, he sits with them, he does his teaching when, when they're eating at the end of their workday. Mm-hmm. He was a practical mystic, very public uh, during those last three years, but very practical. And I, I do the same way, I teach, I go around, I, I meet with people in restaurants and in their living rooms and, and go to barbecues, and we'll have these real friendly conversations about what's, what their issues are. And their issues, they're not telling me, well, I've got an issue with reality. We talk from financial issues, relationship issues, sickness, health issues, and everything, and that's what I like about The Course in Miracles. It does reach the mind and say, here, t- take my hand and we're going to go, but we're not going to dismiss the body, we're not going to just deny the body outright. That's a big problem, I agree with you, because there's a kind of a joke in Course in Miracles circles where the two Course in Miracles students are having an argument. <laughs> and on the, uh, one, one of the students says, listen, you're not real, and I'm not real, and we're not even having this conversation. To me, I use that as an example, that listen, that's not exactly going to get you into an awakened state if you are denying the world and denying the body, mm. you have to actually go and really face what your, what your perception is and what's going on in your awareness.
0: Yeah. Two *Course in Miracles* students walk into a bar. (laughs) 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 I have to make up the rest of the joke. (laughs)
2: Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So I'm really glad we're on the same page with this, because it gets a little tedious when you're talking to somebody who isn't, and you know they keep kind of harping on. It's like if I had to define enlightenment these days, the way I I think the best way I can come up with it is not sort of taking refuge in the absolute, but having the kind of the capacity to incorporate. Absolute and relative within a larger totality and having the facility to uh, It's like like an expert diver or something who could sort of dive to any level of the ocean where his attention was needed and who's you know Comfortable at the very foundation of the ocean and comfortable on the waves and comfortable everywhere in between so someone who can just function across the whole range of of creation, whole range of reality, as is appropriate to any particular circumstance, while at the same time continually grounded in that foundation.
1: That's beautiful. That's, that is the ultimate, I think, in spirituality, is to be in that connectedness, that quantum field, that unified awareness field, and, and still seem to have a body, and still seem to act, and, and yet there's a love and a presence that just radiates there that is so felt. Mm. I do feel what you're describing is really the ultimate uh, experience of spirituality in relation to the dream.
0: Yeah, and like you know, Christ is a good example. You're talking about Christ. You know, he didn't say to the leper, "You're an illusion. Your, your leprosy is an illusion." You know, I'm moving on. He dealt with the situation, or all the various other situations that he dealt with. He he didn't um, brush them off as as illusory. He dealt with them compassionately on the level that the person in question was experiencing it.
1: Yeah. And, and also, a the, the lot of times, the malady or the, the symptom would uh, disappear yeah. or go away, because I think he was just in such a state of the presence of truth that even the symptoms you know it was just symbolic that, that truth doesn't have exceptions. It's not that like truth is true in some situations and not in others. I think it was more how willing the people were, if they really were willing to open up what he was talking about, then their symptoms disappear, and there were some cases where they didn't. And I think it was we all can relate to that, where we just would rather be right than happy. The ego would rather be sick than healthy, and so I, I think it comes down to a deep decision in mind.
0: I've heard the analogy of someone like Jesus being like a vast reservoir. And you get from the reservoir according to what kind of a pipe you put up to it, so if you put a little sipping straw you 're not going to get very much, but if you put a big pipe, you know then the reservoir can really flow so somebody who's totally closed off is isn 't going to get much, but um, if you have that open as you will yeah. And also, I think you know. There's that story of the woman who touched his cloak from behind, or something, and he and then he realized that. I think he said the power has. What, how was that saying? She he yeah. recognized that some kind of power had been transferred by, yes. by virtue of her doing that. I, I've been around some people like that, and um, you know, there's this sort of like a they're like a blast furnace of consciousness or something, yes. and you just feel <laughs> you feel kind of permeated in their presence and, and transformed. You know, just without any actual need for words or anything and so you could see how you know if that's the source which ultimately sustains us and if someone can radiate it that powerfully then you can see how healings and, and so on would take place because you can be more kind of suffused with that that essence in, in either in the presence of someone or by somehow enlivening it within yourself in some way
1: even remotely like the John of God yeah. remote healings and so forth just that Tapping in, just being willing to tap into the presence. Uh, I heard Wayne Dyer recently in Hawaii. He went through a, a beautiful healing, and he was kind of closed at first. But the friend just said, "Listen, uh, John of God's going to do some psychic surgery on you on such and such a day," and uh, it di- he did. And it was uh, kind of a shock initially. But Wayne had to be willing, you know, to really open his mind to such a remote healing, and it, it mm-hmm. seemed to remove the symptoms.
0: Yep. The surgeon can't operate unless the patient lies still. Yeah. 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 And you know that story in the Bible where the Roman centurion, who was played by Ernest Borgnine in Zeffirelli's (laughs) *Jesus of Nazareth*. Um, you know, I think he comes to Jesus and he, and he says, who is it, somebody's family or, or some, one of his soldiers or somebody was sick, and he asks, Jesus, oh, I'll come and, and see him. And the, the Roman centurion says, no, 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 you don't need to come. You, know, you, you kind of, I forget the terminology, but you, you command all the laws of nature. If I'm a general. If I say to my soldiers, go do such and such, it's done. I don't have to go there. So just my asking you this should be sufficient to, to make this happen. Remember that yeah, story?
1: I do, I do. And, and then Jesus even made a comment of noting the faith of this uh, Roman centurion, because for many people they think, well, he's not even a Jew, uh, he's not even religious, and my gosh, and Jesus used him as an example, like this is the kind of faith <laughs> that I really am talking about here.
0: Yeah. So what do you think of the actual mechanics of this kind of thing? There must be explainable in terms of some kind of mechanics, of subtle mechanics of nature's functioning. How does this stuff actually work?
1: Yeah, it's, it, for me it's been fun to read in ten years of university and really be well-versed in a lot of the, the different disciplines of the world, because then I could really appreciate uh, what this was talking about. But it's basically what Carl Jung talked about, the shadow, a lot of psychologists uh, and philosophies talk about the unconscious mind. And at one point, Jesus says that the unconscious mind is the unwatched mind. So what does that mean, unwatched? There's all these assumptions. We live on conditioning and assumptions as human beings. We're sitting on this vast, dark system of beliefs that we have not even raised up into awareness. We've not even questioned them. We just go about our daily life. And so the mechanics is really like Ramana Maharshi talks about inquiry ultimately, you know, who am I? I love that. I, I love inquiry. I love a devotional pathway to God where you just give yourself over to Spirit, like, like Mother Teresa did, you know, and say, I want to see the Christ in everyone. I think that is the mechanics are when you have a strong desire to know who you are, like the Greeks said, know thyself. It's a passion, it's a desire, and you begin to understand that you have things that are still unconscious that you're not even aware of you notice that you get triggered as you move through time and space, and I think that's just like giving you the tip of the iceberg. It's actually every single time that tip is exposed, it's an opportunity for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. So the mechanics that Jesus teaches in the Course is a different kind of forgiveness than most of us were raised with. We're used to thinking you forgive your brother, your sister, your mother, father for what they did to you, you know, they, they wronged you, uh, or maybe you didn't do something that you thought you should have, and it was an error, a sin, or whatever you want to call it. In A Course of Miracles, Jesus is saying, no, you forgive your brother for what he has not done. You know, at first it's like, wait a minute, what does that even mean? He did it, I've got the evidence, I mean, I have a video recording of, of it. And Jesus is saying, no, linear time is part of that maya, it, it's made up by this ego, Gnostics call it the demigod, you know, demiurge. It's part of the Maya to think that that your behaviors are right or wrong, when he's got a whole system of dynamics saying, when you're in alignment with Source, you're in your right mind and you're forgiving. When you're not, you're in egoic perception and that needs to be raised up into awareness and, and released. So he's not saying to fight the ego or trying to kill anything, he's just saying it's running you while you're giving your powerful mind over to this puff of nothingness. And this whole projection of time and space is part of the puff of nothingness. So if I use like a football or baseball analogy, you're on a, a road game. You know, well we're here in time and space really facing all the conflicts and pain and suffering and, and hurt, we're, we're like on, in the ego's territory trying to come back to eternity.
0: So in terms of mechanics. So, like somebody like Jesus or John of God or somebody who can heal somebody, someone from afar, that's kind of what I was referring to about mechanics. You know, let's say somebody has cancer or something, and, and someone like this is able to facilitate a healing without even laying hands on them or something. That means that in their body, little cancer cells are disappearing and physiological changes are taking place and so on because of some guy a thousand miles away doing something. What are the actual mechanics through which that is happening?
1: Well, the mechanics of that is that, really, there's only one of us. You know, I've heard you say in your show, really, there's there's one of us here, mm-hmm. and and mechanics of that are if it's one mind, we'll say, or one consciousness, or even one soul, one soul that's asleep and dreaming, has mm-hmm. forgotten its reality. The people that seem to exist, we'll say, the seven billion people on planet Earth are are part of the projections of this demiurge, of this ego. And then when when you heal, we'll say at the mind level, there's actually a, a workbook lesson where Jesus says, when I am healed, I am not healed alone. So what seems to be remote healing, symptom removal at a great distance, is very kind of quantum in the sense that once you start to heal your mind, then your whole perception of the world is healed. So for example, we think of of human beings and animals and so forth, and plants getting sick and dying. What this is saying is, no, it's your perception is distorted. You might remember in Corinthians in the Bible it said, you know, we, we look through a darkened glass, right. and really what Jesus is saying in the Course is he's saying, when you have a darkened glass, your lens is, is very dark. Mm-hmm. You're, it's like Plato's cave analogy, you're just seeing shadows on the wall you're not really seeing with spiritual vision, you're seeing through distorted vision. So it took me years of really following this and practicing to start to say, okay, if I'm experiencing symptoms in the body, or if I'm perceiving symptoms in my brother and sister, either remotely, on Skype, or seeing that through my five senses, then that's part of this distorted perception that that I need healing. So it's really healing in mind, that's one of the books that I. I wrote, called it's called Healing in Mind, and then the mechanics are when, when I am healed, I am not healed alone. And I mean, I've had those kind of healings where people's physical symptoms through prayer and praying together have disappeared instantaneously, and then as you mentioned earlier, even a Raising the Dead experience, like Jesus had some of those that was reported in the Gospels. That was all I saw as perfectly in line with what my lesson was because the day that I had my Raising the Dead experience was, I was reading a lesson in the workbook, and that was my lesson from Jesus. There is no death, the Son of God is free. And so it didn't even shock me or surprise me when it seemed to happen, because I could see that that was perfectly synchronized with what I was supposed to be learning for the day.
0: Hey, you better tell us about your Raising the Dead experience now, because I'm sure everybody's <laughs> curious. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I was really working with the Course and doing my lessons Really, each lesson—not like looking forward to 365 lessons, but waiting for my wake-up lesson. Because he says it just takes one instant. You don't really have to. It's not a matter of quantity. It's a shift in your whole awareness, is what this enlightenment's about. And I remember um, I woke up in the morning and I was—I could hear Jesus, and he would give me guidance. But he said, uh, "Take a plate of salad to your grandmother." My grandmother was probably in her 80s. Mm-hmm. and I would frequently take food to her for lunch. She was legally blind uh, with degenerate, macular degeneration. So I was going to go to the same uh, grocery store where I go with the salad bar and Jesus said, no, not today. You're going to another grocery store. It was a, a store that I very rarely ever went by. Mm-hmm. I went in there and I went back and I started to go back towards the salad bar area to make the salad for my grandmother. and. And I saw that there was a woman laying there on, on the tile floor of the grocery store, and uh, I noticed there were paramedics trying to do CPR, trying to revive her with no success. And then I just kind of, it, it just struck me, I just watched this scene and then, then the paramedics kind of backed off and people kind of backed away, there was just a body laying there completely, no motion, no, no movement in the, the area, no breath or anything, just completely, seemingly dead. And I remember kind of being near the frozen food section and then I felt all this kind of energy up near the third eye and all this energy coming in really strong around the heart chakra, like just an intense surge of energy. As I mentioned to you, my lesson that day was, there is no death, the Son of God is free. And that particular line was like in my mind going through like a mantra, like a Rolodex that day. I was just so focused, even though I was getting lunch from my grandmother, I was focused on my lesson. And then, as it came in stronger and stronger, I just witnessed the breath come back in this woman, literally just saw her diaphragm start moving again. But it seemed so natural, it seemed like I was just practicing my lesson for the day. And there is a part at the beginning of the Course in Miracles where Jesus has 50 principles of miracles. And I believe it's number 23 where Jesus says, you can heal the sick and raise the dead, because you made sickness and death. And can abolish them both. So it was literally like a workbook lesson, and I was very well versed in what his teachings were, where he was calling me to be a miracle worker, not anything that I had planned doing on this lifetime, Uh, nothing my parents ever aspired (laughs) for me, you know, but actually working with it in a very practical way. That was, it seemed very, very natural. I went back after that and I got the salad. I went and paid for it, and I didn't, you know, I didn't, it wasn't like Bruce Almighty. Uh, you know, when he he's got the little tomato soup bowl and he parts the <laughs> parts the soup, parts the soup., and he goes, oh! <laughs> you know, it was none of that. You know, It just felt really like, of course, like this was what I was supposed to perceive. And it wasn't like David was doing anything either. It was yeah. more like I was just witnessing a miracle in action. And it just coincided with my daily lesson, so it was very natural.
0: So, that'll be easy for skeptics to brush off as just some kind of medical thing that happened, but I find it interesting that you got these prompts to go to that particular store and, uh, you know, something you wouldn't ordinarily do, and then you began having this experience, and then the woman revived. And I've never had any prompts so dramatic as those, but I get them all the time. I always feel like, in retrospect, the course of my life has gone remarkably well despite my intentions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you feel yeah. the gratitude of that, I feel that too. Yeah, you want a particular thing, and you want that thing, and it's not working out, and then, and then something else happens, you think, oh, of course it didn't work out, you know, this is better. I mean, this, if I had bigger vision, this is what I would have wanted, but I didn't yeah. see it, you know?
2: Yeah, exactly, <laughs>
1: I feel that. It's like those grace moments. Thank you, <laughs> thank you for helping me see that I'd really rather be happy.
0: <laughs> yeah, interesting. So the word miracles obviously is one of the three words and or four words in a course in miracles. So let's talk about miracles a little bit. What they are, you know, why it has this in the title, and uh, you know, stuff like that.
1: Yeah, that's rather a, a curious title, because we think of miracles. I think a lot of people just think of, you know, parting the Red Sea or raising the dead and turning water into wine. You know, the kind of those are more flashy stuff. Flashy stuff. And I think, in the Course of Miracles, it's more it's training your mind to miraculous thinking. Like, we'll say there's this thing in your mind that we'll call it love, or spirit, or happiness, joy, and it's, it's a presence that's in you. It's really who you are. It's, it's there to remind you who you are. And when you align with that, that's a miracle. It kind of lifts your mind beyond the celestial realm of this world. You feel so vast, uh, even if it's just for a moment, and the course would say that's a miracle and, and we need to get you to be habitually miracle minded mm. instead of habitually ego minded. So oftentimes Course and Miracles teacher will define the miracle as like a shift in perception. And that that's not flashy at all. I mean you you may be having a bad day and then you pause and take a few deep breaths and go, This is ridiculous. You know, I, I need to just change my tune here, and then you you do. That would be a miracle there's a definition in the course where Jesus is asked you know what is a miracle a miracle is a correction it it looks and waits and watches and judges not it's it merely looks upon devastation and reminds the mind that what it sees is false so it's it's one of those moments where you just kind of tune in the spirit and you have one of those glorious moments where you're reminded of the Maya and you don't have a obviously a, a, a negative reaction to that is this glorious, expansive feeling, and that's what, it's, in simple terms, that's what a miracle is.
0: Okay, well that's a good explanation. Personally I wouldn't have chosen the, the word, <laughs> just because 150 years ago, Jet planes and computers would have seemed like miracles to everybody alive. These days we take them for granted. And jet planes and computers just take advantage of certain laws of nature that weren't understood 150 years ago. But there's really nothing miraculous about them. They they just uh, applied certain aspects of nature's functioning that we hadn't really understood before they were invented. So to my mind, Jesus walking on water or something like that You could say it's a miracle from the perspective of someone who doesn't understand the mechanics through which he could do such a thing, but uh, if he actually did do such things and all the other things he was said to have done, or anybody else besides Jesus, who many many traditions have miracles, then these people are just kind of utilizing certain laws of nature which are as intrinsic to the creation as gravity or Propagation of light or, or anything yeah. else that you know the average person just doesn't have a handle on but they've somehow mastered them
1: Yeah, I, I think there's a really good aspect of that in the sense that in the course Jesus says miracles are natural
0: Yeah,
1: When they when they do not occur something has gone wrong hmm. uh, he's basically saying that to be happy and joyful and and light that's our natural condition as God created us and then when they don't occur, then something has gone wrong." He would say egoic thinking, wrong." he calls it wrong-mindedness, right-mindedness and wrong-mindedness. So this kind of ties in with what you were saying earlier about how do we work with levels and level confusion when there's this thing called absolute oneness, which really doesn't even have to really be in our conversation that much, because it's just there. We can intellectually go, yeah, it feels good that there is an eternal reality, But practically speaking, that's where I think the mechanics come in, where he's saying that the right-minded way of looking is that your mind is causative, and you are not at the victim, at the mercy of a world outside of yourself. Mm. And then he says you need training in miracles, he calls them miracles, but we could just call them right-mindedness or alignment with Source, to become more habitually right-minded. So, I agree that... um, if you looked at miracles and defined them from a, a perceptual, part, it would seem like skyscrapers are miraculous. Uh, the Golden Gate Bridge <laughs> is miraculous, and putting a man on the moon <laughs> yeah, well, is pretty miraculous. Yeah. But that would be more from a human sense of the relative world. This, I think, is just saying I'm going to work with your thoughts and become more tuned in with Source. And I, I'd say that that's what the greatest non-dual teachers are. They're just more. Uh, habitually right-minded, they're really good examples of that presence and love.
0: Yeah, and you've you've alluded to kind of flashes of insight or flashes of cognition of of the non-dual reality and so on, but I think we both know, and maybe you are one, that there are people for whom this is not a flash, but an all-time living reality.
1: Yes, I think there are people, I think of Eckhart Tolle's park bench experience, which seemed to change his full perception in the flesh, mm-hmm. in, a, in a real significant way. And people always come to me and they say, I want one of those. <laughs> um, I want one of those Eckhart Tolle uh, park bench experiences. But in the Course, Jesus says, most are given a slowly evolving curriculum. They mm-hmm. have so much fear that they would be terrified. And He says, don't be concerned that you'll get hurled into reality. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to happen. So I feel like that's beautiful in the sense that. For me, it's been more of the slow and steady, uh, if it was the tortoise and the hare story, I was more the tortoise, Mm -hmm. meditating, practicing, watching my emotions, watching my reactions and paying attention to this belief system that was trying to tell me I was a victim of the world. Mm -hmm. And then this new insertion of of love that was saying, you're not. This is a course in empowerment so that you can train your mind, uh, train your consciousness to be peaceful.
0: Yeah. In the Waking Down group, they call them, people like us, oozers. Um, <laughs> and there's that verse in the Bible, isn't there? It's uh, the kingdom of heaven cometh like a thief in the night. Uh, yeah. it, it sneaks up slowly uh, yeah. for most people. I mean, yeah. it, there are a few Eckhart Tolles out there, but for most people it's this sort of incremental thing where you hardly notice that anything's changing. But if you could somehow jump to where you were 10 years ago, it would be a dramatic contrast.
1: Yeah. And I think it's a call to witnesses. Like I, I've done this slowly and steadily for like twenty-five years or so. But now I find I get invitations all over the world. I will go over like to communist China and where a lot of my writings and teachings have proliferated. You know how they talk about taking, what do they call that, where they copy and multiply things in a yeah. pirating,
0: pirating, right? Well, I put China's a lot of good at that.
1: China seems to be good at that, but what (laughs) happened was my teachings have been online for so many years for free and a gentleman over there translated them all into Mandarin, and then they got pirated and sent all over China, and then what happens is China has a very deep non-dual, some traditions that are very non-dual, unlike a lot of Western countries and so forth. But these these non-dual teachings just proliferated all over China, so when I finally went over there, people came from... Hundreds of kilometers away to like Beijing or Shanghai, bringing me flowers and roses like ama or something. And I was like, I was, it was almost like the Beatles had landed or something. And for the first time, I, I think I had instant groupies showing up and wanting to come up to my hotel room and people lined up and oh, thousands of photography, you know, photographs. And it was, you know, kind of fun for me because. I'm not used to that at all. You can imagine if you went over there and something like that happened, it would kind of get your attention. Yeah. But it was because they really resonated with the non-dual teachings uh, that were in Mandarin and they could relate to it.
0: That's neat. Is there a sort of a official hierarchy in the Course of Miracles, like the Catholic Church or something? And if so, are you the Pope or, <laughs> or how does that all work? Are there Are there kind of different autonomous branches of it or what?
1: No there's, no, there's no official hierarchy, and uh, actually the Course is known pretty much around the world in all the languages, it's been translated into 17 languages, I think, as a self-study book, mm-hmm. which is kind of nice, in the sense that people can sit down in the comfort of their own home, or now take their Kindle along, or their little iPhone and, and listen or, or read it. But there have been teachers, I would say, there was the original four that really were like stewarding the Course. Uh, Helen and Bill, the first two students, and then a, a man named Ken Wapnick, who just recently passed away last December, mm-hmm. and then um, and Judy Scutch, who is the publisher of the course, uh, she's still alive, she lives in California, mm-hmm. they were more like the stewards.
0: Then the name Gary Renard comes to mind.
1: Yeah, Gary's helped popularize it. Uh, he did a book called Disappearance of the Universe, mm. and um, really it was kind of using the context of two ascended masters coming to sit on his couch periodically and visualizing there and talking to him about the course. and then
0: That was his experience, or this was a sort of a poetic uh, fabric, uh, you know? Yeah, he
1: says that was his actual experience. Um, And so that book kind of got popularized, started off with a small publisher, uh, D. Patrick Miller out in California, but then when Hay House picked it up, you know, it kind of spread around. So I think a lot of people who were course students were energized by that book, and then others who had never heard of the course, they were introduced to its uh, non-duality teachings that way.
0: Yeah, I had some guy get in touch with me. He said, "I just read Gary Renard's book and i um, disappearance of the universe, and I'm so inspired. I want you to interview me." And I, I thought, well, maybe I should interview Gary. You know, But uh, <laughs> I'll do that one of these days. Um, <laughs> I listened to a lot of your recordings, and um, a couple of questions here. One is. Um, When I first started listening, or or thinking about this, I thought, "Uh uh-oh, this is going to be one of those things where there's a lot of people who kind of psych themselves into an intellectual understanding of something without a commensurate experience. And I see that happening a lot. There's people in the non-dual community, for instance, who read a bunch of Ramana Maharshi books, or Wei Wu Wei, or one of these things, and just get kind of saturated with that understanding, and then mistake the understanding for actual realization. And then they get on the chat groups and start pontificating and driving everybody crazy. But as I listened to various people and so on, I really got the feeling that somehow the Course, or at least the people that I was listening to, had really transformed people experientially. That it wasn't just a head thing, but that it was sinking into the heart or sinking into the level of an actual living experience. So um, is... Is that true, and I I imagine you're going to say yes, and for what percentage of people is that true, and what are the mechanics through which the concepts presented in a book become experiential?
1: Yeah, I I sense the same thing, but I think it's the percentage that actually have a deep transformation, and I would say a, a very mystical kind of transformation. Are, is very small
2: mm-hmm.
1: like it is probably for advaita vedanta and, and so forth there's a you know everyone knows of ramana maharshi but there's a whole lineage there of, of those just like with jesus there's christians that would love to say that they would love to live like jesus but their lives don't really seem to be anything like it at all right and so i would say that self realization is a very 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 high high state of mind and we have to be practical but also there are very few people that seem to go all the way into that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not judging anybody because everybody's got to take their steps you know, and open as best they can. But I feel like even with the Course in Miracles, there's a lot of teaching of it and workshops and seminars and so forth. But, but as far as actually having a consistent state of mind with it, I would say that's quite rare. And even Helen Shuckman, they asked her one time, and she said the Course is for five or six people what did that mean i think what she meant by that was during the first generation of people who work with the course five or six would be elevated into that frame of mind that state of mind that, that the course is pointing to which isn't a lot considering that the course has sold millions of copies worldwide
0: yeah I think that's true of many traditions, even in the Gita, it says something like that where you know of all the people who hear about this,' only a, a small section are going to understand it, and of, of those who understand it, only a small amount of those are actually going to experience it, and it actually breaks it down a few more times, and the the sampling gets smaller and smaller yeah. and uh, you know you could see that with anything, I suppose. Are people realistic about that in the course generally? Do they understand that they may have a long way to go in terms of fully living what is being discussed in the book? Or is there a tendency to mood-make, you know what I mean by mood-making, where, yeah. where people just kind of psych themselves up into a feeling of, of what's being referred to, but it's actually a far cry from what the real experience would be?
1: Yeah, I think you're going to find that among people who work with the Course, that there are some that, that try to be very positive and try to they would love to act loving, because mm-hmm. they know that the Course is aiming at forgiveness and love but they also, I would say most, are seeing it as very much of a lifelong journey and process. I think if you go fully into it, you see the promise of, of that it can be an instant, like the, the park bench experience that Eckhart had. It doesn't exclude that, it's in there, but you have to like let go of, almost empty the mind, as, as the Buddhists talk about, of everything you think you think and think you know, and come to such humbleness mm-hmm. and such trust and faith so that's been my journey where it wasn't just going to conferences or doing groups or working with students. I actually felt that that I needed to understand this thing called divine providence, where i would I would be provided for in any circumstance and I think that's why I, I appreciated these these guidance and prompts that would take me out to all these travels because you're a little bit out of your comfort zone and safety zone of the house and the bedroom and For me, I liked being out there, kind of like the Indian mystic uh, Meher Baba, who was wandering, like a wandering mystic. I love. Peace pilgrim. Remember
0: Peace Peace Pilgrim? Pilgrim. Yes.
1: Oh, she inspired me so much. Yeah. And my life has gone more that way, where I've just been out and about, and people would say, "Oh, come here, offer me things," and it was very simple, but it was a simple provision while I was watching my mind and doing my inner practice. I found I could be friendly, joyful, and and go and speak, and then move on and loosen my preferences, my ego preferences up.
0: So I don't know much about the, your tradition of in the Course of Miracles in terms of how open you are about discussing your own degree of realization. I know, like for instance, the Dalai Lama won't talk about it, but you know, in your own experience, to what degree do you feel you have attained self-realization? To put it in simple, simple terms.
1: Well, it feels very, very full to me. I actually was in Mexico recently, and I'm all so open-minded that uh, they take me to different healers and modalities. Somebody told me there was a quantum machine that would read your, everything about you, uh-huh. and uh, I, I'm very open-minded. I, you I'm broke open-minded.
0: the machine, right?
1: <laughs> well, I didn't know what was going to happen because the machine was telling me certain foods that were agreeable with me, and it was going through it was a very two-hour detailed thing, mm-hmm. but one of the things that the machine um, was answering was, it, the question was, what percentage of your life's purpose have you accomplished? Mm-hmm. Which I thought kind of fascinating, it was to have that, and they, the woman who was administering the, the machine, she began bursting into laughter when the machine said 100%. Mm-hmm. And I know with, with all my travels and my years of doing this, you know, I have felt such a consistent joy and happiness that I could relate to that, although they were laughing because they said, we've seen hundreds of people hooked up to this machine and nobody has ever got that answer. Yeah. So I don't really like to try to talk about it myself, but I, I laughed at that answer. I said it, it feels like there's a fulfillment in the contentedness, and to me that's what spiritual attainment is really about, it's about really content in the moment not distracted by the past or the future at all.
0: Yeah, and would you say that that's how you would define your life's purpose in terms of a subjective condition as opposed to accomplishing this, that and the other thing in, in the outer world?
1: Yes, to me it's a state of mind, that, that's my measure of success, I would, if we had to use it that term, or attainment, it's, it's consistent peace of mind, it's not getting buttons pushed, it's not having those reactions. Uh, I would notice that over the years. Like one time, I was with a friend and we were on a ferry at the front of the boat, like Leonardo and Kate uh, <laughs> at a ferry up in the Pacific Northwest. Right. And I, we didn't know it, but there was a giant foghorn
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, behind us, the uh, massive. And it fog blew horn. off. It blew off, and my friend who was standing right next to me jumped, probably like two feet in the air. Mm-hmm. It just—it was so startling. And I just noticed that I didn't move at all. Yeah. I wasn't startled. And it's the same thing like when I would go on roller coaster rides. You know, when I was a kid as a thrill seeker, maybe 10, maybe 15 years ago, I got invited to go on one of these really wild roller coaster rides. And I wasn't affected whatsoever. I didn't feel dizzy or turned around. Or yeah. those IMAX things where they show you the fire truck and you're on the back. People were groping and falling <laughs> all over and grabbing on these steel bars. And I was standing there, so I thought, well, this course in miracles is really working on my perception because mm. those were little symbols to me that it was some kind of training was happening because I wasn't reacting and responding to the world the way I used to.
0: I think those are all actually really significant examples. I mean, they're apt examples. In fact, there's been research done on meditators testing, what do they call it, spontaneous galvanic skin response or something, where they you know present them with unexpected startle responses like loud noises or something, and they, they can measure. How the, the galvanic skin response reacts to that, which is a measure of stress. And people who are more established meditators tend not to have much reaction; they just kind of take it in stride. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. And there's all kinds of verses in you know various scriptures about equanimity and, and you know balance and success and failure and, and all that kind of stuff. So the, those are really good if we can think of in terms of measurements or uh, markers of levels, degrees of realization. Which there really should be. I mean, if it's just a matter of subjective reporting, and if a person reports that they're in some marvelous state, but then you find them kind of freaking out about this and acting like a jerk, and <laughs> you know, then it it doesn't really, you know, you know you shall know them by their fruits. Yeah,
1: those I think those are all good examples. And for me, the other thing, like I mentioned, the divine providence. I think when we think of the term divine providence, maybe we think of Saint Francis or. Mother Teresa or something like that, I've always felt spirituality had to be practical. Yeah. So, years ago, when I I started off on this journey of spirituality, Jesus told me he said, "You won't have a career," and I said, "Oh, okay, that's that's interesting because uh, for me, most people that I knew had careers, and even career as a defining, you know." I don't know with monetary success or attainment of different statuses or whatever you however you define it it was kind of striking to me and then as as it played out Jesus had said you know freely you have received now freely give so my ministry started out you might say in public ministry and then just traveling around and going to people's living rooms and houses and backyards and whatever very very simple and then when I would travel around they'd say do you have any like books or products or resources, and I would say, oh, heavens no, I mean, I, I, it's just here, it's just me, it's presence or whatever, you know. And give it's, give uh, a lock of your hair, but you don't have any. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it. It's, it's, it, there's not much else physically to give. So what happened was, I followed that along, so what I've done is I, I really felt called to make it accessible on the Internet and however I could so people would have more free access to it, like the China thing where they... Mm-hmm. they translated it to Mandarin, and then eventually people did say, well, it would be helpful to have some books or YouTubes or DVDs, and so I said, okay, we'll do that too. But to me, that it takes the commerce aspect out of it, because I think that's very seductive in this world when you have something and then all of a sudden you, you try to really make a production out of it, and then it's suddenly you're into a career
0: again, and I've always felt that that's not my way. So you just basically get along through donations and one thing leads to the next, maybe some book royalties now that you've written some books?
1: Yeah, it's pretty much donations, and, and even the books are more just people transcribing my talks. I'm more of a storyteller, parables like Jesus and very verbal. I don't never have sat down to write a book. People transcribe the talks and then you know, it turns it into a book.
0: Yeah, you probably find that you're much more eloquent anyway when you're just on your feet talking than you are if you sat down at a desk and had to start writing oh, yeah. something, right? Exactly. Yeah, it I, like turns I, I, on I, all I, the <laughs> cylinders when you're, when you're up in front of a group. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so when you get these messages from Jesus, Jesus told me this, Jesus told me that, is it actually like a voice in your head, or is it just sort of a subtle kind of intuitive impulse, or what?
1: It's like a train of thought. Impulse is a good word, mm-hmm. and it will come very like a very striking prompt, and there will be a train of thought. But for me, it was very specific, it wasn't like, you know, you are love, and love you one another, and you know. Yeah, it was like, go to this grocery
0: store and yeah, get exactly. the salad for your grandmother. You forgot your keys,
1: turn right, you know, your other right, like in the, you know, your other left in the Matrix, you know, and it was very specific guidance, and it does remind me of that part in the Matrix where, where Neo first gets the little phone, phone message from Morpheus, mm. and Morpheus says, I can guide you, but you must do exactly as I say. I get these very specific prompts and it's made my life so fun and easy. I wouldn't have followed it, I don't think, if it, if it didn't have any kind of practical, <laughs> like day-to-day living benefits, but it, it actually seems to be very wise and it, it helps me handle things even before I run into problems. It precedes the possibility of problems.
0: Yeah. I have some friends who uh, have what we might call subtle perception or celestial perception or whatever. In fact, the whole thing fascinated me so much that I actually did a group forum about it a couple months ago, you know, one in particular that I'm thinking of sees subtle beings all the time and they're always around, just as people, you know, if you go to a mall or something, you see people all around, well, that's the kind of way it is with subtle beings. If he's at a mall, he sees the people and he also sees subtle beings kind of attending to the people and doing this and doing that, and he's not nuts, I mean, this guy is very clear they don't usually communicate with him, but once in a while they will, they'll, they'll kind of correct him on something or give him a thought to do this or that. And so, you know, when you describe your experience of Jesus saying things to you, I wonder whether it's Jesus or whether it's actually these subtle angels or beings or whatever are everywhere, and they're like our guardian angels or something, and they are kind of putting little messages in our ear if, if we're able to yeah. hear them.
1: Yeah, I, I really feel that, I, I feel like whether it's Jesus, Holy Spirit, Angels or guides, spiritual guides. I mean, there's so many ways to talk about it. And I think it's really whatever anybody feels comfortable with. At the beginning, I, I had been raised Christian, but I kind of got into so many explorations of so many spiritualities that I, I kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater a bit at one point. And I was in university for 10 years. So when this Course in Miracles came, I thought, wow, whoever is the author of this, they really know who I am. It's got some Christian language in here, I've been studying psychology and I've been in education for 10 years and these are the, the three uh, fields of study that the words are picked from. It's almost like it was tailored to me, and I felt really grateful about that. But I do agree with you that I think it's Spirit helping us and whatever symbols we can really uh, open up to, I think is what will get used.
0: Yeah. So with regard to Practice. I think I've heard you say you meditate in some way, and there's a, there's a workbook with the Course in Miracles, so people are practicing stuff. Um, if a person is really an ardent Course in Miracles student, what might their daily routine be like in terms of practice or whatever?
1: Well, if they're going through the text, they may be reading a section of the text, a chapter or some sections in there, depending on how fast they're going with it. If they're do- going through the workbook, some groups or people will start on January 1st and there's 365 lessons, so they'll do one lesson a day. Oh, okay, I Although,
0: didn't realize that. It's just like for days, all the days of the year. Yeah,
1: okay. All the days of the year. Although Jesus does say that if you feel a, a particular lesson is is really helpful for you, you can stay with it. Mm-hmm. So the only instruction, there's only two instructions that come with the workbook, and that's don't do more than one lesson a day. Mm. Like, don't do Evelyn Wood speed reading <laughs> and try to get through it in one day or something. And then, as best you can, try not to make exceptions to the lesson. So, for example, if you're on lesson number 48, which is uh, there is nothing to fear, wow, if you're a human being moving through time and space and that's your lesson for the day, Jesus is just calmly reminding you there is nothing to fear.
2: Mm.
1: And whenever you have fear or some derivative of fear coming up, you would come back and come back to your lesson. Oh yeah, remember my lesson. What's my purpose here? I'll give you a practical example of how that works for me because that might give you an idea. Um, One day I was coming home and I was doing lesson number 136. Sickness is a defense against the truth. So I come home and I put a plate of uh, food in the microwave and while it's cooking I just start to get this nauseous feeling, very nauseous, stronger and stronger, like nauseous feeling, and then diarrhea feeling coming in very strong. And I was watching my thoughts, like you're supposed to do as a meditator would do, I was watching my thoughts, open-eyed meditation, watching the microwave and watching my thoughts. I, oh, I might be catching the flu, I wonder if it's the 24-hour bug or the 48-hour bug, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to eat the food because of the nauseousness, diarrhea feeling. Then I diarrhea was so strong. I rushed into the bathroom, got on the toilet seat, and then my lesson for the day came back into my mind. Sickness is a defense against the truth. This is not something we are commonly thinking about. We're thinking about what caused it in the world, and what remedy can we do to do it. And then more th- thoughts came from the lesson, like sickness is a decision when you're afraid of love and you want to prove that you're little and tiny and frail and not Christ-like or Buddha-like, you actually decide in your mind for a symptom and for something. Everything in this world of experience is a decision. So I actually had a very deep meditation there on the toilet and calling on Jesus and going very deep in my mind and the symptoms did disappear. Everything just you know, in an instant, had an instant remission. That was a practical example, and that's how it went for me with the Course in Miracles workbook lessons. They weren't random. I felt like everything that was happening to me throughout the day was my opportunity to apply the lesson, when I could think of it. You know, I got distracted like most people. So in that example,
0: was there some particular truth uh, against which you were defending yourself and that was making you sick? Were you pushing against something?
1: It's always like divine love, like there's a lot of singers that will sing songs about I won't fear love, and, and sometimes in relationship workshops, you know, they talk about fear of intimacy. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's really always, like a, it's not really a sexual intimacy that there's a fear of, there's a deeper intimacy of dropping the mask of our personas, and who, what if they see underneath the mask? Mm-hmm. But underneath that, like the fear of our power, the fear of our, our spiritual reality, that's the basis of what the Course is helping us heal, is that fear. So at the end, so in that example,
0: I, you were somehow pushing against or blocking that, and yeah, that was making you sick.
1: That was making me sick, and then I followed it down in my mind to the point of decision, very deeply, where I could see. I kind of said, "Okay, I just loved and adored Jesus, but I basically had to follow what he was teaching me in that lesson, and I basically had to come down. Do do I really think Jesus is telling me the truth here, or is Jesus lying to me?" and when i finally was able to open my heart to the truth of it in that moment then the symptoms hmm. disappeared and it was a very powerful as you can imagine it was a very powerful experience for me
0: yeah some would argue that eating microwave food will make you sick but that's another issue <laughs> that's <right. laughs> so that was a case in point so basically from what i've what i've gleaned from what you just said is that you know there's a lesson a day and each lesson has a kind of a core point and you uh, dwell on that as, as much as you can throughout the day if, if you're studying, you know, on that particular day, if you're studying that lesson. So that's kind of the way it goes, it's, it's sort of like a, you dwell on a core point throughout the day when you're studying a Course in Miracles, or is there kind of a thing where you, you know, sit down for half an hour and close your eyes and, and engage in some kind of meditation practice every day, regardless of whatever the lesson may be?
1: Yeah, some of the lessons are actually guided meditations and it takes you deeper and deeper inward it's highly individualized but i would say the lesson gives a structure of like it's you start off with a little more structure just like if you were an addict uh, an alcoholic or something and you needed 12 steps you would go there for some structure you know for some help that actually involves some structure the course lessons start off with some structure and then it starts to fall away it gets more and more spontaneous, more and more abstract as you go through the workbook lessons. And also some of them are short. Some of them there are review lessons that come back and review earlier lessons. And then there are some lessons, like I think lesson 135, I believe, is the longest lesson in the book. And and then it's it's getting into real practical things. Like it says a healed mind is relieved of the belief that it must plan. It says mm-hmm. in that lesson. And for most of us, you know, we know we need training in that because we can get all the best laid plans of mice and men, and sometimes our plans go awry. But this is saying, if you become more intuitive to those inner prompts, and you just take it moment by moment, and you're really in the present moment, then you are relieved of the belief that you must plan. And that kind of unwinds you out of this uh, linear human perception, takes you more into the celestial perception.
0: Yeah. Which doesn't mean you can just show up at the airport without having made a reservation and say, here I am, you know, let me on the plane. You have to, you know, book your ticket in advance. But yeah. I know what you mean in terms of, there's a yeah. balance, you know. Some some people plan obsessively and they're kind of working things out from a very limited perspective, which doesn't jibe very well with the way things are actually <laughs> unfolding in, in the world. Mm. Yeah,
1: it's very practical. Like in that same lesson, 135, Jesus says, if there are plans to be made, you will be told of them by one who knows you're good. Hmm. So it covers just what you said, it's not trying to be obsessive where you just sit in your bed all day right. and say, I'm not going to plan. It's, it's really practical. I, I like that the best about the workbook is you still have internal things to do, but they don't take that much time, and, and he says in the, in the workbook, you, it is possible to go about your regular activities all through the day. Listening to the the voice of God without interrupting your regular activities, so it's more of a of a reminder practice. of shifting your perception again, and not trying to uh, you know change the world so much. Change your way of looking at the world.
0: Yeah, who was it, Gandhi or somebody who said it's a lot easier to wear shoes than to cover the earth in leather?
1: Yeah, I know. I've, I. <laughs> And that's that's practical, you know. He always said, "Hate the sin, love the sinner." Mm. You know, he, he was still facing the purification that was necessary, but but always emphasizing love.
0: Yeah, there was one of your recordings I was listening to. I think you might have been in Australia, and there was some Oriental girl with an Oriental name speaking with you, and, and you guys were talking about get precisely what you're talking about. But I, I kind of had the reaction of, "Yeah, but if a person wants to be a tennis pro or a, a doctor." They've got to really work at it. You know, they have to practice, they have to train, they have to study. And there was something in the nature of what you guys were saying that made it sound like you were taking the air out of that. That somehow individual striving was counterindicated. Comment on that?
1: Yeah, I, I do feel like attention, practice, and striving are a phase of the spiritual journey that you can't dismiss. Like we said you know, you can't dismiss aspects of what's there.
0: And not only but, the spiritual journey, but you know, life's journey. Yeah, I mean, life's journey. if if you oh, wanna yeah. be a brain surgeon, you gotta study, you know, yeah. and, and that is not in conflict with spiritual progress, right?
1: Well I would say the spiritual progress is more taking that same tenacity and persistence and using it in your meditations and using it in your we'll say mental processes as well. So, we're not saying that anybody sh- should or shouldn't do any of those kind of studies. Mm-hmm. It's more of putting, directing it. Like, I'd, after 10 years of university, I felt like I said, okay, now how can I use all these skills and abilities and this attention and focus that I have from being a good student? Mm-hmm. How can I turn that towards peace of mind as my goal? Mm-hmm. So, instead of like a personal attainment, like trying to attain a higher status in the world or those kind of things, just aim it at peace of mind. So I think that's a very good point. And then I would say, when you get more to those advanced states, like I know I enjoyed watching you and Lisa Cairns because you know you come really be very practical and, and she would be giggling and laughing and smiling. And I think that the deeper you go, miracles are involuntary. There's this involuntary presence, it's the divine ease that comes in. And at that sense, the striving starts to fall away, the vigilance, the mm. intensity and in the practice, that all naturally fades away. But you can't skip it, you know, you can't, yeah. can't just go with words and say, oh, la-di-da-di-da, you know, you know, it doesn't work that way.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think, you know, various uh, professions, you know, sports or music or whatever are good metaphors for that, because concert violinist, Yasha Heifetz or somebody, really had to work. But then after having done all that work they get to a point where it's very effortless and spontaneous or, you know, a great basketball player or downhill skier or something, they, they really have to work at it. And I'm not saying that spiritual practice necessarily should be hard work in the sense of blood, sweat and tears, but what you just said, that you know, a kind of determination, a focus, a dedication, a seriousness about it. Can really bear fruit. And you do reach a point at which you, you can kind of relax and, and you're there more or less. But although some spiritual teachers talk about internal vigilance, um, but you know, there's, you know, lukewarm approach yields lukewarm results.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And I see Yogananda's picture behind you. It reminds me of my early years with the Course. A friend of mine, Don, was a Kriya Yoga, Yogananda follower, and I was practicing the course. And we would meet at the tennis court and we would say, okay, let's see if we can do an open-eyed Zen movement meditation with the tennis. So we would guide it to, to let go of keeping score and competing and trying to beat each other and everything to use it as, a, as more like the whirling dervishes with their movements. And so, lo and behold, we would do that, we would be out there sometimes for two or three hours. And it was excellent mind training, it was like that was our Tai Chi, that was our, mm. our yoga, using tennis you know, to raise our level. What happened was, it was like we became less judgmental and trying to even kind of control and direct the ball. Our rallies got longer and longer, and after a period of, of number of many months, it looked a little bit like Jimmy Connors and Bjorn Borg playing out there, we were so relaxed that we were hitting all kinds of topspin lobs and running each other all over the court like these long rallies in Wimbledon. And it just showed that our, our skill level went up, but really it was because we were using it for a discipline of mind, hmm. like Tai Chi is. So I did that with many things in my life. I actually thought, this is a practical application where the Spirit uses something that's fun for me, like tennis or basketball, and then I train my mind to be more in the zone, as they call it in sports or yeah. present moment.
0: That's cool. Yeah, there's a verse in the Gita which is Yoga Karma Sukoshalam, which means yoga is skill in action. And by yoga is meant you know union with the divine. And you know, it's not just that union, but it actually results in skillful, spontaneous, effortless action.
1: Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I like the practicality of that.
0: There's something that We were talking about like 45 minutes ago and for some reason the thought keeps coming back to my mind to loop back to this and throw it in which is uh, we were talking about the ability to affect healings and so on at a distance and you were talking about how you know ultimately there is no distance and everything is contained within the one mind and i've actually talked to a number of people who upon awakening have had that experience like there was this girl kieran her name is who i interviewed last november so and she said what she experiences these days is, you know, she'll be sitting in meditation or something and, you know, the conflict in Syria is within her or, you know, Ukraine or whatever, there's all this stuff and she feels like a washing machine where she's processing all this intense stuff that's going on in the world and she feels like she's actually having some, some beneficial influence on it. And so that's kind of an interesting concept. We've heard of the idea of yogis in the Himalayas sitting in a cave. Uplifting the world, or keeping it from blowing itself up, and comment on that.
1: Yeah, I I think that is right on. I I mean, I enjoy movies about the butterfly effect. Yeah, I see the a lot of quantum physics movies coming out. I saw a movie recently called Mr. Nobody, which was an amazing kind of quantum movie. But the spirit had to like, it took me like two or three days for the spirit to decipher that for me because I said, what is that about? And the spirit gave me like huge download, like a two-hour download of teachings on this one movie. Um, some of us know more movies like uh, Next, which was a, a movie that, that Nicholas really starts Cage. Nicolas Cage. Cage. It starts to bring in superposition, it starts to bring in this whole idea of hypotheticals, because the whole half of the movie is a hypothetical, hmm. as if a scenario in his mind is if a bomb goes off, a nuclear weapon in uh, Los Angeles, and he goes all the way back to the point where he's in the bed with his girlfriend, and that's just a scenario in his mind. So I use movies, Uh, I have a book called The Movie Watcher's Guide to Enlightenment, I I have an online site, mwge.org, where people actually work through their emotions and their difficulties in their daily life by watching movies, Hmm. because they enjoy watching movies. But I feel it always into this butterfly effect kind of thing where if we heal our mind, like Joel Goldsmith, a famous healer. Uh, Christian mystic, he, would, he actually seemed to pray and help resolve a subway strike, <laughs> I think, in a major city. Mm-hmm. I, I enjoy those examples because mm. you know, they're rare, but now they're becoming more prevalent with the movies. This movie Lucy that just came out, um, just opened oh, yeah. a couple of days ago with Scarlett Johansson, that's a mind experience where she has these powers that are all related to her perception and her, her own
0: consciousness you know John Mark Stroud? Yes,
1: I started the first Course in Miracles monastery in the world, but it's not like typical monasteries. But he came to uh, one of my week-long sessions and he just laughed and laughed and laughed and and I've seen him doing wonderful things around the world, Uh, just very, very healing.
0: Yeah, I did an interview with him and Francis Bennett in person in North Carolina about a year and a half ago. And he said that he began to cognize Jesus or have these messages from Jesus. And that it kind of became this movie night thing where he and Jesus would, would kind of like enjoy movies together and, and comment on their spiritual implications and so on. Yeah. That's what
1: true. me of. Him. It's true. I, he, he participated in some of our movie gatherings there too because, you know, Jesus taught so much in parables.
2: Yeah, and I yeah. think
1: movies are like our modern-day parables. I think of Roundhog Day and Truman Show and Matrix and Oh, sure,
0: so many things. Close Encounters, oh, Star Wars. Yeah,
1: yeah all those absolutely amazing. So I would just ask Jesus take me to the movies when I would have a, a block, mm-hmm. and He would take me into like a video store, and uh, and rent movies. Again, it was so prompted. Like one time, I was having a, a conflict in my mind, and He said, "Now go to the video store." And he, he said, Now pick out this movie and pick out this movie. Wow. And he said, Now watch them back to back. And I said, That's really unusual. Both movies one was called The Game with Michael Douglas, and one was called The Man Who Knew Too Little with hmm. Bill Murray. And the similarities were amazing. Both of them had two brothers offering a gift, and the first one was like a recreational mind trip that was. They do all this testing and then you go through all these experiences. And the second one was the theater improv, the theater comes to you, and both of those were the gifts. And then Jesus, at the end of watching those movies, he said, now what the difference was is the Michael Douglas' character was fighting against the guidance the whole time, and he found himself buried in a coffin in Mexico, (laughs) and Bill Murray was so clueless and so unattached to outcomes. That he laughed all the way through it as they tried to poison him. They thought he was an American spy. They tried to strangle. him, they Tried to do all these things, and he laughed all the way through. Even when they tried to rob him, because he thought it was it was all improv. You know that was the mindset he was in. So this is how the spirit works with me. It, I get these strong prompts. I go follow, and I go really two movies in like one day, and then the spirit gives me a big download afterwards and says, "Here's the point. Be lighthearted. Don't." Be a passerby. by don't take this seriously.
0: This is great. I'm actually writing all these down because I haven't seen most of these movies, and uh, once a month I go over and watch a movie with a friend who's paralyzed with MS, and we're always wondering what we want to watch, but this, this gives us some good material here. But this point you're making about movies, actually, is I've always found it thrilling. Since I kind of got to the point in life where I realized that there was a higher intelligence that was helping to orchestrate you know, the the course of events on on Earth. I always found it thrilling when a movie like Star Wars or Close Encounters would come out because I would feel like, wow, you know, Spielberg or Lucas, they're like channels. We were talking about channeling earlier where some kind of higher purpose or higher intelligence that wants to awaken something in mass consciousness has used these guys as conduits through which to introduce these ideas. So I always saw it as more than just entertainment but as as some kind of a some kind of an inspiration for humanity that was being brought about by these genius producers. Mm.
1: I feel the same way. I, in fact, one of the biggest complaints I hear from students of, and spiritual seekers is they say that the journey it's so difficult, it's so tumultuous and it's, it's tedious and it's time-consuming and this and that, and it's not fun. So I say, well what if Not my if experience. You, if you could use movies in a way that would be, not entertainment, but would really be insightful like major insightful. Yeah. So what I did was I I took this Movie Watcher's Guide to Enlightenment that the Spirit gave me, I put it online, and then I there's an emotional index. So if you're dealing with jealousy or competition or guilt or shame or whatever, you go to the emotional index and then it points you to the <laughs> movies that you can go and watch, stream or download, and it helps pop through your issues. So it's kind of an advanced form of spiritual psychotherapy. You've probably heard of Spiritual cinema circles with Steven Simon, and so forth, and but this is more kind of advanced, where you actually we're precisely going in there with what is the emotion abandonment? Okay, here's your index of movies to watch to help you release your abandonment, because we know it works. You know, we get a movie and we feel so much lighter, and we go, what just happened? How did I, how do I feel so much better yeah. <laughs> at the end of this movie? You know, and it's it's spirit working with us.
0: That's great. And this is on your website, right? I mean, people can download this uh, movie's guide to, Movie Watchers Guide to Enlightenment?
1: Yeah, yeah they, it's on the website, it can be purchased at, at a bookstore like Amazon or whatever, and then the online site is mwge.org, Movie Watchers Guide to Enlightenment, and that's where the emotional index, is. we don't show the movies, you know, they're all copyrighted. Right, right. But, we just do the setups and we give all the what you're looking for and how to heal. Cool. You know, all that well, kind of stuff. I'll
0: link to that on your Batgap page also so people can go check it oh, out. Beautiful. Somebody sent in some very interesting questions. I'd like to get to those here. It's a person who obviously is quite experienced with Course in Miracles and was actually one of the people who recommended that I interview you. And uh, it'll take us, you know, maybe 15 minutes, but I'd like to read through these questions. Uh, it'll end the interview on a real kind of high metaphysical note. Let me start with the first one. <clears throat> this is regarding people-pleasing. David often talks about discouraging people-pleasing, but of course in Miracles says, whatever your brother asks, give it, because if he asks for it, he believes his salvation depends upon it, and if you refuse, you are believing your salvation depends on not giving it. How does that statement fit with David's idea of not people-pleasing?
1: Yeah, that, there's a couple of statements early on in the text where it says, Jesus says, if a brother asks you to do something outrageous, do it, to show its nothingness. And then he qualifies it a hundred pages later, he puts in, as long as it would not bring harm To you or someone else, because this is where course students, when they're reading that, yeah, let's go go jump off
0: a bridge or something. (laughs) Jump
1: off a bridge or let's go rob a bank. Oh Yeah. yeah, okay, I'll do it. You know. So it's all very practical, but basically those are the early stages of of starting to get out of such intense egocentrism, you know, my way, like the Frank Sinatra song, I Did It My Way, that the the mind can be so egocentric that it has to start to open up. And so if somebody says, Come on, come out and dance with me on the dance floor, and you think that's outrageous, I'm not a dancer, do it to start to break you out of your, your comfort zones, your patterns and so forth. What I find, the communities I work with, I talk about no people pleasing, no private thoughts, is that there's so many unconscious assumptions that we're, are deeply ingrained that the m- deeper you go into spirituality, you know, where people, they act one way and then they, you see them and they're there with their mom and their dad and they suddenly turn into a little child, a little boy or a little girl again. Because they're they're so thick, these assumptions Mm. around mom and dad or around certain places that actually I work with people, I would say more in the advanced stages, Uh, no people-pleasing means let your yay be yay and your nay be nay, like the Bible taught. Learn to become very intuitive and first of all, you need to be open-minded, which is what the question was about. And that helps to do that. But then when you get further on, um, you know, I'm sure people like talking to Ramana Maharshi or Yogananda, you know, may make all kinds of suggestions and they just smile, you know, they're not inspired at all, you know, because they're radiating that presence. So it it helps you get into the deeper realms.
0: Yeah, so maybe another way of putting it is be true to yourself, you know, don't do stuff that compromises your deepest principles or values just to... Make yourself liked or happy or some or make other people happy or something,
1: yeah, and also look for like automatic responses, like if some people will say somebody says, "How are you feeling? Oh fine, 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 fine. I find that fine word is a tip that there's some people pleasing going on if you're you're always fine and you're not really in touch with those emotions underneath which are blocking you from the light. you need to like speak up and even sometimes express whatever it is like okay i'm feeling Whatever it is, yeah, down or whatever, and that opens up the healing
0: well there's a, there's a flip side to that. When I was in India some years ago, and for the first couple of months that I was there, I had like this chronic bronchitis, and every t- every time somebody asked me how I was doing, I would say, oh i'm doing you know well, I'd go into this whole sob story about my my lungs and the way I felt and you know, you know fever and this and that, and finally, at one point, I, I thought to myself, i'm tired of complaining about this and so From that day, whenever anybody asked me, I would say, I feel great, I feel fantastic. And within about three days, the bronchitis cleared up. Uh, It could have been coincidental, but there was this sort of, I don't know. I
1: like that. I like that. That's the side of how powerful the mind is. And then the flip side, I find people get in these patterns where they just, they they aren't even aware, but they just try to put on a happy face. And there's so much repression and denial going on. So when I say no people-pleasing, it's more getting underneath at those all those unconscious beliefs, because as long as we're just kind of trying to glide through the day and react and respond and play it safe, then a lot of times we never we never get in touch with what's underneath.
0: Yeah. Okay, enough about people-pleasing. Next question revolves around, what is creation? The following paragraphs refer to statements in the Course and questions that pertain to the theme of creation and expression. Is creation possible without perspective? Page 319 in the workbook says, the opposite of life can only be another form of life. The word form is used here, suggesting that form and creation are connected. But on that same page, it also says, it cannot make the physical. Well, physical isn't really physical anyway, according to quantum physics. It is nothing appearing as something. What would creation be if not some sort of form? Because it can sound like there's a suggestion to not express, to just flatline it, uh, stay. Uh, this that's not very clear. So, what is the the key question here is: Is creation possible without perspective? And there's something that'll follow on after this, but let let you answer that part.
1: Yeah, the way that the course is using the word creation most of the time is it's talking about pure spirit. So it relates back to our question about, you know, what is reality, which we talked about at the very beginning: eternal, changeless spirit. So. Just like in this world we get apples from apple trees and oranges from orange trees and bananas from banana trees, I would say spirit comes from spirit. In the Bible, you know, there's all this form stuff, so and so begat, 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 all the begats. That's all projection. And spirit, we might say if if God is pure spirit and Christ or Buddha nature will say is pure spirit, the course even takes it one step further and says that you, as the Christ, as not Jesus, but the living abstract light of Christ, you have creations, but you're unaware of them because you're sleeping and dreaming, but you actually have eternal creations. So God creates in spirit, Christ creates in spirit, and we have this word co creator, which comes up a lot in spirituality. What Jesus is saying in the Course is, He's saying, Co creator means that God gave you creative ability, but not ability to make or to make form. That's all part of projection. So, everything of this world, we could say it, cosmos, time space, cosmos, and everything of it is a projection of the ego. That's very different than Genesis. I know I was raised as a Christian and I go back to Genesis. You know, God created the heavens and the earth. So, we think of God as a creator that's covering the abstract realm of heaven, not the sky, but beyond that, and also the form. And in A Course in Miracles, Jesus is saying, no, you need to learn to forgive the projection and come back to that creative state of mind, which is pure spirit. So really there is no perspective to creation. Every time Jesus is using that word in the Course, whether it's God creates, or Christ creates, or co-creator, or even you, Christ, have creations, He's always talking purely abstract, uh, pure spirit. He's not talking form at all.
0: Okay, so let me dwell into this a little bit more because I don't completely understand what you said, and maybe listeners won't either. Let's look at cosmology for a minute. We have the idea of the Big Bang, right? Supposedly, the universe started in a Big Bang 14.7 billion years ago or 13.7. And, you know, presumably it went on for quite some billions of years before enough stars had been formed and exploded again until there were enough heavy elements to form bodies, to form living life forms and so on. So there were no real perceivers or egos or anything else floating around until quite you know some billions of years into the process of creation. So when you speak of ego bringing about form, if that's what you said, uh, are you talking about some kind of cosmic ego that that arises somehow out of nothingness that gives rise to the forms of stars and galaxies and so on, and eventually gives rise to you know, human bodies and, and all the rest, or are, are you referring to individual egos which haven't yet been able to be embodied because there were no bodies around in those days, or what?
1: Yeah, yeah this, is, this is kind of going way past like Freudian or typical psychology talks about the ego in a very personal way. His ego hurry ego right you know, and, 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 and in Sanskrit
0: is, they call it ahamkara which means the eye maker
1: yes yes yeah what we're saying with this is uh, if we go back to the Bible Jesus used had an interesting sentence you know he would say things like I and the father are one and he would say things like before Abraham was I am, I am. Yeah. so we'll say prior to time Abraham being a creature of time before Abraham was I am before Jesus the historical Jesus was, I am. Mm-hmm. So there's an I am-ness that we'll call spirit or reality. Okay. And then I would say that the ego, the Big Bang was an explosion, right? Everybody, it was a hurling, seemingly a hurling out. Yeah. And even some of the greatest physicists have talked about how it's, it's like they can map it out, it's like it's already over and done, like the Akashic Records. This is what time and space looks like, they even draw out a map. It's kind of static, but it depends on where you are inside the, the map where you perceive yourself located in time and space. So it is more like a cosmic ego, the belief that you can separate from oneness, from love, from I amness is what projected out the entire cosmos. So it's going beyond kind of a a historical sense, like, oh, it was just natural, it just happened, you know, like Stephen Hawking might just say, it just happened. (laughs) We don't know how it happened. In the Course, Jesus is saying, into eternity, where all is one. There crept a tiny mad idea, at which the Son of God remembered not to laugh. So this whole thing of distortion is is forgetting to laugh, which is where the comedy comes back in. You know, he's saying creation is is pure abstraction, and what we consider life in the world, you know, biological life and life on other planets, you know, that's all part of a, a projection. It's pretty vast, you know. It's yeah. pretty deep cosmology there.
0: Yeah. Speaking of cosmology, um, well, one thing is that, one phrase I've heard is something called pragyaparat, which means mistake of the intellect. And it's it said that, you know, that at some fundamental level, we make a mistake in which duality begins to creep in, and then it bifurcates and multiplies and all, until we have the whole, the whole catastrophe, as Zorba the Greek put it. Yeah. And there, are, there have been saints like Ramana Maharshi and Papaji, who actually wrote a book, Called nothing ever happened, which, from their perspective, means the whole universe actually never did arise. It just to appear, uh, just appears to have done. Yeah, that's so. beautiful.
1: That that fits in completely with what the course is teaching. And one time there was a very famous Course in Miracles teacher, and they were asking him, uh, "What does the Course in Miracles say about life on other planets?" And he said, "Well, the course says there's no life on this planet," <laughs> and and it's the same kind of thing. Nothing really happened. Mm. But to experientially go into that, it takes this forgiveness process of of really raising up the unconscious beliefs because if it's appearing to be real, you can't deny the appearance. Yeah. You have to go much deeper than yeah.
0: that. Reminds me of a Jimi Hendrix line from Third Stone from the Sun, Ah, there ain't no life nowhere. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. And I'm, I'm um, go a ahead. fan too of the Carol King, remember Carol King oh, in yeah. the sixties and seventies. She did a song only love is real, everything else the illusion. You illusion." Know, and and I thought, wow, I, I always liked that song, and then <laughs> years later I read yeah. it. It's teaching the same thing.
0: But it's interesting. I mean, a, a physicist, you could talk to a physicist, and they would say something similar, I think, at least some of the more advanced ones. They'd say, yeah, even though we, we see cameras, and computers, and walls, and all, all the, the physical forms, if you look closely enough at uh, what's actually there, nothing's there. It, yeah. just, it just looks like there's something there. Somehow it all assumes forms and there are all kinds of intricate, brilliant you know, laws of nature governing it all on every level from gross to subtle. But when you get right down to the essence of it, yeah. nothing there.
1: Yeah, I feel that. I, I feel like the quantum field that the physicists, quantum physicists talk about and the forgiven world that Jesus talks about, where it's all unified awareness, mm-hmm. where it's not an inner and an outer, not an observer and observed. It's mm-hmm. like it's it all is one. I think they're all saying the same thing, and uh, all the mystics and saints have talked about it, so it's very encouraging.
0: Yeah. Now, there was something I was listening to, or, or maybe reading, in your stuff where you're were, you were talking about consciousness is actually somewhat less fundamental than pure existence or something, and it reminds me of something that I had understood over the years, which is that pure existence somehow has a, a self-referral nature where consciousness arises, becomes conscious of itself, because it's consciousness, and in the process of becoming conscious of itself, a, a kind of a threefold structure emerges, in, you know, of observer, observed, and process of observation. And then, and then that continues to proliferate into greater and greater complexity. Is there, is there something along those lines in The Course in Miracles?
1: Yes, exactly. In fact, Jesus says that consciousness is the domain of the ego. So when we talk about pure consciousness, I think we're talking about unified awareness or approaching this pure oneness. But I love your interviews because you will address with your interviewees this idea of levels and in mm-hmm. the relative world. And I do feel that the relative is part of the domain of the ego because it has levels and it can be trained. And in my think, father's
0: house there are many mansions.
1: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think that's practical we reach higher and higher levels of consciousness, that's yeah. just the way it seems to be. We can't, we can't deny that that's the way it seems to go, but the pure existence that we're talking about would be just in line with what you said, It really a transcendence, not, not a threefold or, or having yeah. different levels at all.
0: A state prior to the emergence of all that. Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay, good. I'm sure we could go on on that one, but here's something the person continues along the same lines. Course in Miracles says — oh, this is good, this is right we were talking about — quote, consciousness is the first split. That would mean that the only way to be truly unified with Absolute Truth — this is what I was thinking of when I said that a minute ago — is to be beyond consciousness. I assume that would be different from unconsciousness, she asks. But we don't really have direct experience of what is beyond consciousness. So how does this play out in experience? Does it mean that we cannot experience Consciousness and Truth, Absolute Unity, together? Again then, how does this relate to, as the Course puts it, quote, God's real creations, If consciousness is a split from Absolute Truth, is a split from Absolute Truth necessary for any kind of creation, even God's creations? Can we be creators and also be in Absolute Truth? If we aren't in Absolute Truth, how can we create as God would create? But, if we are in Absolute Truth, which is apparently beyond perspective, beyond consciousness, does any creation even seemingly occur?" These are great questions, aren't they? Yeah,
1: they really are. She's right on line with this in the sense that, that the I amness that's prior to history, it just is what is. So there's no need to focus on it or, or anything other than just desiring it, you know, and letting the, the Spirit bring it into full awareness. But I, I always tell people, we're here to train our consciousness and, and to become fully conscious. So even if it's the ego's domain and we've got an unconscious and a conscious, we want to raise up what is out of awareness so we can be fully aware. And to me, that's, that's the stepping stone back into that I amness. And none of that has anything to do with creation, like I talked about earlier. So I, you could say the I amness, God creates, Christ creates, not Jesus, but, but the essence of what truly is, is a creative state of mind, it's, it's extending and radiating, but not in a quantitative sense. It's hard to even describe, our words are, fall way short when we come into that realm.
0: I heard you say something in one of your recordings um, that relates to this, which, in which you seem to be saying, if I remember correctly, that it's nonsense, the notion of, of God needing creation or creating creation in order to experience Himself or enjoy, or something like that, is nonsense. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you know I, I would counter that to say that there is something more, in a way, to a manifest, an apparently manifest creation in which beings such ourselves can attain God consciousness and know ourselves as God and and have living experience as a human being yet in the consciousness of God than then there is to flat on manifest creation never having emerged you know prior to the big bang if that's if that's the way things work so it almost seems as though you know the creation is not some kind of mistake or accident or or anything else it's it's actually something with which god enjoys or entertains in fact in sanskrit it's called lila there's a play yes. it's, it means play and so there is a kind of a greater richness to the whole show than there would be to mere unboundedness, and so you know, I wouldn't say it's baloney or nonsense that God is enjoying this. This is how He enjoys. This is His play.
1: Yeah, I know. I've, I've read about Leela and, and a lot of the different uh, kind of responses that come through Advaita Vedanta and, and dual, non-duality teachers. But yeah, the, that's where the course is kind of a little bit unique in that way because here it's coming through and it's describing the illusion and the puff of nothingness and so on and so forth, into eternity where all is one, there crept a tiny, mad idea. It's really implying that, that distortions of linear time and separate bodies and human beings and stars and planets and, and the whole thing that is involved with the Big Bang, that somehow that God has something to do with that, and uh, or that, that it had a, a reason to come into existence. But if we go back to what Ramana Maharshi Papaji were saying, the Course is saying, what I'm saying, you know, it never happened. Mm-hmm. What, what never happened doesn't need a reason. In fact, I would say it's more of an explanation for the mind when it's waking up. If it helps, if somebody I, I always kind of like Leela because there's a playfulness to it, mm-hmm. and I think spirit is playful. But I'm talking ultimate non-dual metaphysics, like why spirit would need the appearance of finality or the appearance of temporality, I still think that's kind of anthropomorphizing. It's almost like coming from a human perspective and saying, oh, there's got to be a reason. There's some pretty strong language from Jesus in the workbook, which is basically saying that, um, that the world is, was made as an attack upon God, a place where God could enter not. Now the, a lot of people who actually read the Course, they don't want to touch that one with a ten-foot pole. I'm one that I want to wake up and and be in bliss eternally, so I'm going to take everything that's said, I want to look at that." That fits a little bit more with uh, it never happened, in the sense that he's just saying, no, the world wasn't made by God as an enjoyable place for leela and play, it actually is a way of, uh, it's a place of idols, hold no graven images before the Lord thy God. I don't think he's talking about totem poles and statues in there. I'm thinking the higher cosmic projection of the Big Bang is those graven images. That You know how they talk about the veil that was drawn over the truth? I'm looking at that I really want to question everything about the veil and see, is this veil really attractive? Pleasure, pain. Is there something called bliss that's beyond pleasure and pain? I want to know that. Sure. I'm going to follow these words that he's saying, and there's even a workbook lesson um, which is 128, the world I see holds nothing that I want. Most Course in Miracles teachers don't emphasize that lesson. In fact, I talk about that lesson when I'm traveling. One time I had a concert violinist who invited me. Uh, he said, Listen, he raised his hand. He said, I was doing the workbook, but when I got to lesson 128, the world I see holds nothing that I want, I closed the book. I said, No, that's not, I can't be authentic. I can't actually practice that lesson. And I said, Well, the lesson 129 is so beautiful." He said, well, well, what's that? <laughs> I, I said, well, oh, that's right, you closed the book on 128, and lesson 129 is beyond this world, dualistic world, mm-hmm. beyond this world is the world I want. Yeah. It's talking about a unified world. So I don't think there's anything wrong with the world at all. Actually, I feel like from a place of ju- judge not, which is the teachings of the beatitude, we can behold a unified world. Yeah. in which it's pure love, you know, pure love reflected. So I'm, I'm not one of these kind of negative ones like, I'm not into asceticism, I'm not into flagellating the body, or you know, I don't strike the body down or try to think that it's evil. Even the Gnostics, I think, knew that the world was an illusion, but then psychologically they still started coming up with practices that kind of made it seem like it was evil. You know, like the demiurge made it, so it must be evil. But I'm teaching, don't judge it. You know, it's it's beautiful when you don't judge it.
0: There's a lot in what you just said. I think that there's a perspective in which all this, all these, these apparent contradictions can be reconciled. Uh, that you can say the world is an illusion, and in the same breath, uh, you can say that it is. And, and I agree with your your statement about. We shouldn't anthropomorphize God and and talk use words like reason and and desire and this and that. I mean, but I also would disagree that the, the world is some kind of accident or mistake or whatever word you use there. Because if it is, then how can we truly say that God is omniscient and omnipresent? The world is in God, and God is in the world. It, the whole thing is, in fact, we could even say there is nothing but God, period. And therefore, what we see is kind of God playing within Himself. You know, I, I use the word Him, obviously it's not a masculine thing, but that, that sort of divine intelligence churning within itself, and there's nothing other than that. It's the, the ocean, you know, and little currents going around within the ocean. It's all just water. But, you know, we see this current here and that current there and there's an, yeah. I- there's an iceberg, but the ice is really only water. The whole thing just seems to me to be kind of all is well and wisely put. It's all a divine play, there's no mistake, nothing wrong with it. That, and the thing you said about graven images was, was really good too. I mean, it's a graven image only if you don't see the divine in it. Yeah. Um, if you don't see what it essentially is, divinity appearing as form. Uh, but, you know, I think the the perspective can be predominantly the divinity, secondarily the form. And I think there are people living with that perspective who, you know, they just see God everywhere, and God appearing as computer, God appearing as rock, God appearing as dog. You know, but if, if God really is omnipresent, then that's the way it's got to be. There's nothing, there's no place, God's not living off on some planet, like you said the Mormons say. Uh, you know, what kind of God is that? He's like, uh, like Napoleon on, on that island that they <laughs> banished him to, uh, you know, he, he, he's just uh, the one and all.
1: Yeah, I, I found that everything, like, those are very, very subtle points and very important, and uh, when I was doing the workbook lesson, I got to lessons 29 and 30, I believe, um, lesson 29 from Jesus, right from Jesus, God is in everything I see.
0: Yeah, there you go.
1: And then lesson 30, he goes to explain it. Mm-hmm. But it's a little bit different from what you're talking about. Okay. So this is why I'm fascinated, because I say the same thing, God's all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, you know, that, that's what we were told. Mm-hmm. And, and then, But he says, God is in everything I see, lesson 29 is true, because God is in everything I see, number 30, because God is in my mind. So okay.
0: Not only but, in your mind.
1: But, well, not mind in a per- oh, personal cosmic sense. cosmic mind,
0: sort cosmic, of thing. Cosmic, yeah,
1: yeah, like vast mind. Okay. So he goes into that and he's saying that there's a purpose that's in our mind that's like a, a unifying purpose, you could call it the Holy Spirit, you could call it a cosmic purpose or intention that's, that's within us, it's mm-hmm. still there. And he's saying that what that does, that's what unifies perception. So he's just saying fragmented perception. Is, is the problem, and unified perception is the answer. So when we start to get into saying, you know, he'll use exactly what you're saying, he'll, he, he's training the mind to see everything is unified. Right. And so he'll say, God is in that waste paper basket, uh, God is in that, that curtain, God is in that chair. He has you actually go through and practice with everything that you're perceiving to take you in more to that unified experience where you're just your love and everything you perceive is filled with love. So I, I do feel like it's going in the same place, and I don't think that, that we're trying to uh, ascribe any kind of ill meaning or evil to anything, just saying that there's distortion and then there's unified correction, and that's really where it's all focused. And to yeah. me that's what God is you know, omniscient means, it's unified awareness.
0: And God is in the distortion, if it, if it really is distortion. Because, again, if he's not, if he doesn't permeate the the garbage dump as much as he permeates the beautiful, you know, mountaintop, then he's not omnipresent. And yet, if you look at the garbage dump closely and get down, you know, microscopically into some little bit of garbage, you know, there you see the same marvelous intelligence, you know, governing the atoms and the molecules and the microorganisms that are living in the garbage dump, as you see in, you know, some beautiful scene in in the, you know, the Wasatch Mountains.
1: Yeah, I think it's this thing of like the quantum physicists tell us that the universe is mostly space. Mm-hmm. You know, it's in, and even you go down into an atom. We always thought atoms were the building blocks. You know, we were raised with Newtonian yeah. physics. We thought they were the building blocks, they right. were the smallest little thing. They're mostly it, space. They're mostly space. So, yeah. so, in the end, I like that feeling like it's all energy. And then what appears to be separate and solid might be a distortion. And maybe. God isn't involved with the distortion. Maybe the very name of distortion, you know, looking through a darkened glass doesn't have anything to do with God. I just have to be open to the possibility that even my definition of omniscience may be... It's true, it's true. I just stay open.
0: Yeah, Yeah, me too, I'm just playing with you. If God isn't involved in the distortion, then that would imply that there's something other than God that is involved in the distortion, you know. That That actually
1: happened, right, And, and maybe Ramana had it right. It didn't happen. It
0: didn't so to happen. me
1: the course has this thing called atonement, which is just the awareness that the separation never happened. So to me, yeah. that's like taking Ramana's teachings, Papaji, and it's saying, Yeah, exactly right. Now let's let's have an experience that shows us that for real.
0: Yeah.
1: Not not an intellectual concept. So that's my, my my whole life is I'm I've aimed at an experience, you know, I I yeah. really aimed at that.
0: Me too, but I think that this kind of deep understanding that we're trying to clarify here helps facilitate that experience, you know, yeah, it's yeah. not just an intellectual thing it it it, yeah. it stirs up the kind of intuitive experience of it, to, yeah. to kind of delve deep with your understanding.
1: Oh, I agree. Yeah. These are very meaningful dialogues. It's like a, the Socratic method, you know, I really yeah. you know, I just made a book over the last twenty years and just released it. And it's called Unwind Your Mind Back to God. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's got an unwinding symbol on it here. I don't know if you can even see that.
2: Oh, yeah.
1: Uh But it's basically, it's using almost Socratic dialogue where back in the 1990s, I just got into this joyful, consistent state. And then people started showing up and saying, I am your student. And, you know, all this (laughs) and that. When the teacher's ready, the students will appear, whatever. And our dialogues we recorded, which are kind of, very much like Socratic dialogue of, of just doing what we're doing, yeah. like coming together in the spirit of openness, the spirit of curiosity, the, the spirit of let's discover together, because it's there to be discovered, so let's discover it. And I, I really love that, that's why I enjoy uh, all the books are all kind of dialogues, not trying to preach or teach, it's more like let's discover it together, because yeah. we, we, we have it inside of us.
0: You, yeah. If it's not inside of us, it's not anywhere. One or two more questions from this lady, Um, shorter ones. Relative to creation, from the part of the text called Manual for Teachers, CIM states, and then the voice is gone, no longer to take form, but to return to the eternal formlessness of God." So then what, she asks, is creation finished then? In another place the text says, quote, creation continues unabated. So which is it? What about extension? Even extension is an idea of some sort, or a movement of some sort, a touching of some sort, a reaching of some sort, a shining of some sort, or an expression of some sort. That's our question.
1: Oh yeah, these are good, these are getting down to the core of things. Well, I have always appreciated the metaphor of a dream, because I like with these movies like Inception coming out, they're really showing if there's even layers of dreaming and you're really unaware that you're dreaming, you need a big kick to wake you up from the dream. And so for me, when we talk about creation, and I say it's abstract, there is nothing in this entire cosmos that would even be a close metaphor because it's a cosmos, even black holes or I mean, anything that I've ever discovered, nothing um, comes close to abstraction. So when we think of shining, radiating, we always think of
0: like photons
1: it's Something, yeah, or even a person going like peace pilgrim going out and mm-hmm. and shining her light, radiating, walking thousands of miles to to demonstrate this light. What I I like is this analogy of like a child is asleep and dreaming, but has forgotten that that it's dreaming. So it's just like when we go to a movie theater, we don't sit there and go, yeah, images, images, images. We don't pay fourteen dollars to, to <laughs> sit there for two hours and say that. You know, we get drawn in. You know, we're we're like there, as if it's actually happening right then. It's a trick. You know, we could intellectually say it's not really happening. It's just it's like a little bit of a we're giving we're escaping into it. I would say that if the child's dreaming and the child has forgotten it's dreaming, that if a a wise parent was going to wake that child up, if it's too if it's too direct, if if the parent started shaking the child, for example. The child might perceive the shaking as a monster in the dream Mm -hmm. because it's so caught up in the dream. So, what we're doing is we're being asked to practice raising the darkness to the light, and even we just continue on perceiving what's happening as if it's really happening and coming more to that place where we wake up. Now, when we wake up, just like when we wake up from a dream. Um, we seem to wake up into, I think, another dream. <laughs> I call it daytime. We're daydreaming or we're nighttime dreaming, but Jesus says, all your time is spent in dreaming. Nobody has woken up. And Jesus says, when I awoke, you were with me, meaning there's a state of bliss that we could call creation that is really there, this I amness, but you're not going to have a glimmer of what it's like even when you're sleeping and dreaming, the most you can have is a happy dream. So to me that's what I focus on, is letting everything be used for happiness, you know, true happiness, no, not judging things, being loving, being accepting. And I can't even comment on the I amness ness that's outside of the dream because I'm still watching the dream like, like everyone
0: else. So, but you haven't know, you woken up from the dream to a significant degree? I mean, if, if I shake you now, do you think it's a monster, or, or are you kind of like, all right? I mean, like you said, that yeah. when you were on that boat and the horn went off, you, you didn't react. So yeah. that, that's analogous to the parent shaking the yeah. child, you know, and, and you, know, you were already yeah. enough awake from the dream that you just took it in his ride.
1: I'm having a lucid dream. Yeah. Okay. It's a, it's a lucid dream. And so that's what makes it happy, because I'm aware that I'm dreaming. But I wouldn't presume, uh, even the Course says God will take the final step. I think God doesn't really take steps, but that's a metaphor too, mm-hmm. that once we wake up it's going to be completely unlike anything we've ever known, so to speak, in this world. And uh, I just stay focused on the happy dream, uh, because <laughs> I stay focused on staying lucid. But other than that, I, mm. I can't speak of those things.
0: True about it being unlike anything we 've ever known, and yet at the same time, many people who have profound you know radical awakenings say, "Wow, I always knew this, and yet I just didn't recognize it it was It was right in front of my nose, so yeah. to speak, but I, I just overlooked it
1: yeah, along with the thing I get asked about the near the raising of the dead, I think the thing I get asked about the most is I had three what the course would call revelatory experiences, mm-hmm. and it 's not like a near death experience where you go through a tunnel and you see this light, it's like I punctured through the veil uh, in deep meditation, and it was so deep that it was like Gary Renard's book, The Disappearance of the Universe, that literally everything disappeared that was perceptual, and all it was was this blazing light. Uh, The Course calls it the Great Ray. So I had three different experiences where I seemed to just puncture through the veil entirely and it was unspeakable. I I couldn't even come back and try to put human words to that ecstasy or whatever, you know, that's just a word, a human word. And the Course says words are but symbols of symbols twice removed from reality. Mm. So we're doing a pretty good job I think here today considering our tools are (laughs)
0: twice removed from reality. We're we're giving it a good go here. Giving it our best shot. (laughs) With all, this speak, with all this talk of dreams and sleep and whatnot as metaphor, have you ever had it in your experience, or do you now, that pure awareness is maintained during sleep? And I ask that because that's kind of a traditional acid test of awakening and I've had glimpses of it myself, but it's not consistent, but I have friends who say that it's clear as a bell all the time and has been for years now. So I'm just curious, if you, have you had any tastes of that?
1: Yeah, it seems to be strikingly different from like that, what we call like REM sleep and where we're like generating these kind of scenarios and believing in them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Again, it feels very lucid. I think of like, if this was like what we're doing now, a daytime dream and then at nighttime when the body's in bed and the rapid eye movement and so forth. Yeah, it does feel so much so that I, I would say seemingly my life used to be where I would have a lot of dreams or even night terrors and nightmares and so forth. I don't have those anymore. And, and it's this sense of, of evenness yeah. with it. So I, I don't wake up um, remembering these things and kind of tossing and turning. Um, that was all there before, but it has gone through this purification process. It seems like they've stabilized out into kind of a, a stable, lucid state.
0: Yeah. That's not quite exactly what I'm referring to. That, that would have to do with how much turbulence there is during sleep, or how many dreams you're having, how intense the dreams are. But you know that experience you described a minute ago of that sort of those, deep, those three instances where you had that deep inner light during meditation? Well, I think what I'm referring to is something of that nature 24-7, throughout the, including throughout the night. It's just something to consider I actually have assembled a whole page full of quotes from Ramana Harshi and various other saints and seers who describe that experience. It seems to be one of the um, symptoms, so to speak, of of awakening, that it's not just a waking state phenomenon, it's that the, the ground of being has woken up to itself and then remains awake as the other three states of consciousness, waking, dreaming and sleeping, cycle along.
1: That's beautiful. That really sounds like an awareness of an awareness of dreaming, like being fully aware of that, very much like that lucid state, and even when there seems to be a shift from the body being animated to mm-hmm. inanimate, it stays on. Yeah. yeah,
0: there's a thing in the Song of Solomon: "I sleep, though my heart waketh." It mm-hmm. might refer to that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, here's the final question from this woman who sent in these nice questions. Uh, she said, if the world is an illusion that is essentially a, a quote, mistake, we, you, I think we've talked about this, as CIM seems to suggest, parentheses, the Course says, quote, even the real world isn't real, end quote, then should not all the folks who wake up from the mistake help by removing themselves, i.e. their form perspective? Sounds like they're supposed to do them, you know, Heaven's Gate kind of a job on themselves. Since a point of perspective which can't be absolute truth is therefore a kind of error, it can only be solved by getting rid of each perspective slash form one at a time. If each perspective sticks around to supposedly get rid of other pieces of perspective, the pile will never disappear. The quote voice referred to in the previous paragraph will never be gone. Then we are back to, to flatline, nothing happening. Would this be no creation? That is, is no creation the ultimate goal of the Course, and perhaps other scriptures, teachings?
1: Another brilliant question, and in the sense it's very deep and very subtle. There's, there's one line that kind of hints at the answer, and I just got a big smile on my face when I first read it, but it was Jesus saying, there are those who have laid aside the body to increase their helpfulness.
0: Ah. Yeah.
1: And it, it gets right at her question. Because from the perspective of inside the dream, you know, we look at at avatars and saints and everything, and we're just like Yogananda, we're just amazed at these beings that they've dedicated and devoted their life to emanating and radiating this presence. You know, those are that's why they're saints. And yet this quote that I said, there are those who have laid aside the body in order to increase their helpfulness. Reminds me Which, of
0: Yoda. Yeah. Remember? It, he said, I'll it, be much more powerful after I die. Yes, yeah,
1: exactly. And <laughs> Jesus said things like, I, I must go away now, but I shall bring a comforter. Mm. And he was like implying that the body of Jesus must go for the comforter to come in stronger, you know, for everyone, because they were getting a bit of idolatry with Jesus. You know, right. they, the Christians believed that Jesus was God. Right. But actually, you know, he, he said, I and the Father are one, kind of implied we're, we're of the same spirit. But he, he didn't say, I am God, he never was quoted as saying, I am God. Right. So I think that's very important, That like Yogananda, I liked at the very end when he had his dinner with, with the apostles, with his disciples, how he just said goodbye, but the body remained in a state of non-decay. Right. It's a beautiful symbol of that. And I love the quote at the end of Ramana Maharshi's life, why are you sad? where could I go? Wow, what a perfect non-dual expression to end, and I've even enjoyed those photos of him at the end, as the body, you know, with the tumor, it looks like the body is really going down fast, and then these glowing, sparkling eyes, like shooting, radiating this love and light, to me, that touches my heart. It teaches me that we're we're, uh, being used in a helpful way here, but if we actually lay aside not only the body and the world, but all judgments, then that seems to be the most helpful thing we could do.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. Some spiritual teachings hold that when one is enlightened and the body drops, it's like a drop of water going into the ocean, there's no distinguishing the drop from the ocean anymore. As far as that being is concerned, it's finished, and other, others hold that you kind of stick around on some level, like we were just suggesting, and, and help to do things, help to help people on earth or whatever. In fact, I've interviewed numerous people who had experiences of Ramana Maharshi coming to them before they even knew who Ramana Maharshi was, they'd never heard of him. And then, you know, years later they'll, they'll see a book in a bookstore and say, that's the guy who showed up, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have a, a good friend who, um, yeah, never mind, I won't get into that. But anyway, does The Course in Miracles address that point?
1: Yeah, it even uses some of the same metaphors of, of, of a drop of water in the ocean, Jesus uses that one. He is some beautiful things, but it, it tends to lead towards this idea of a state of mind. He says, when you have learned to decide with God, all decisions become as easy and as right as breathing, mm. and it will be as if you are carried down a quiet path in summer. Mm. It's like, oh! Nice. just it melts you, you know? And it, to me, it's pointing to a state of mind. Can you, he says, can you imagine what it would be like to be quiet, silent, perfectly still all the time? That is what time is for, to learn just that and nothing more. That's beautiful. You know, it's, they're, they're beautiful quotes that just are pointing towards that stillness and that, that sense of the ocean. There's no difference, you know, the drop has been uh, Absorbed in the ocean, and you're just aware of the ocean in all its fullness.
0: Yeah, that's a whole nice, beautiful area to you know, effortless right action, and and uh, how spontaneity and how effortlessly life flows once one is no longer swimming against the current. You know?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this thing with enlightenment, I, I had somebody say to me, well, if you're enlightened, then shouldn't you transmit or Extend that in some way? Shouldn't it appear in this world in some way? Like, shouldn't you have some enlightened students <laughs> if you're, or enlightened disciples if you're enlightened? And what I find is that I did have this experience of hearing the Spirit, not hearing in a voice wipe like we talked about, just these these inner prompts and these like thoughts. But I do find that the ones that I've kind of have lived with me, worked with me, and moved around the globe with me and this and that, that for us, hearing the Spirit, so to speak, or following these prompts is is our daily life. It's not something that's just kind of an intellectual thing, but it, it actually is extremely practical. And if you talk to anyone that I know or work with very closely, call them the messengers of peace, that's exactly what their experience is of going through this world. So it's we're not kind of trying to dismiss this whole idea of guidance. We are saying that there's a state of mind that that even goes beyond the guidance, but the guidance is helpful. It's yeah. Very helpful.
0: And I don't think I've ever heard you proclaim that you are enlightened. I mean, I might have said to that person, hey, what do you mean if I'm enlightened? Did I ever say I was? I mean, yeah, have you, do you? Have you said that?
1: All I, I do is I speak from what is the presence with, within me.
0: Right. And, and people can call that whatever they want.
1: They can call it whatever they want. In fact, to me, teaching is really an attitude. Like the Beatitudes, it's not so much the words. It's good if our words are and our actions are the embodiment or the expression of, of our attitude. But to me, the attitude is the most important thing. And you know, you can give that any name you want: peaceful, love. But yeah, it's not the same. Of time. and when when they say you too, I would not say that David is enlightened, because you know dream figures are dream figures right but but it's, I want to share an attitude
0: and more than an attitude perhaps the the sort of uh, un, the, the reality underlying that attitude of which the attitude is but a symptom
1: yes yeah. exactly yeah.
0: yeah cool well i bet you, you and i could like do a a two-month interview.
1: <laughs>
0: we just sit there and go through The Course of Miracles and, and go on for an hour about every sentence. Yeah, I know, <laughs> we just fun. had a
1: good time. We're just engaged and it, it's wonderful to be engaged in this kind of deep way. You know, I, this has been my life. I, yeah. they, sometime they made a movie called My Dinner with Andre. All right. It takes place at a restaurant and I thought, my God, that's kind of the way my life has gone. I, I enjoy open flowing dialogues in in a joyful presence where we're discovering together. Yeah. And so I really appreciate this, Rick. I, I really have enjoyed your show and and I really appreciate uh, being asked to come on your Buddha at the guest pump.
0: Well yeah, I really appreciate your having come on. And um, I also just really love this moving in the direction of being able to do it as fully as you do. Some people who was it've I mean, been something I read of yours where the guy said just jump off the cliff and build an airplane on the way down. You know? <laughs> it's like just you know. People say, "Do what you love, and the money will follow," and all kinds of sayings yeah. like that. So, uh, I've done that at times in my life, and I'm kind of moving back to doing that. But I'm am kind of inching my way off the cliff, as it were, yeah. and uh, as the as the, the support for Bat Gap grows, and the day job can diminish.
1: Yes, uh, I I see that. I follow that. I see that. I like that you've got your donation button and you're so transparent. You say, oh, I want to go to the non-duality conference out there in California, and this is all supported by donations, and that's the way I've done it. I just put it out there and say, this is the way it is for me, and I'd love that you do that. And I do feel like I can feel the Spirit moving. You're, it's so helpful what you're doing here uh, with this show, and it's, I feel like it's the support will just grow and grow and grow.
0: Yeah, thanks. And I might as well mention in this context that like like your organization, uh Batgap is registered as a 501c3, for which Americans will understand what that means. It's a has a nonprofit tax exempt status. Mm. All right, great. Well let me make some wrap-up points. I've been speaking with David Hoffmeister. It's it's hard to stop speaking with David <laughs> Hoffmeister because it's so it's so enjoyable. But I guess all things must come to an end. This is a an ongoing series of interviews, as you probably realize, and there are about, I don't know, 242 of them now or something, so you'll find them all on batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and there are several different ways in which they're indexed. There's an alphabetical index, a chronological index, a categorical index that another friend named David has been putting a lot of time into and really doing a great job. It's indexed in several different ways. So, um, and you'll find that under the past interviews menu. Under the future interviews menu you'll find a list of upcoming guests, a place to suggest a guest, and some other things, and anyway, explore the site. So each interview on the site has its own page, so David Hoffmeister, there'll be a page for him, and on that page I will have links to any websites he wants me to link to, to his books. There will also be a link to a discussion group on BatGap about this particular interview, a thread about this particular interview. There is a link to an audio podcast on every page so that you can subscribe to this on iTunes and not have to sit in front of your computer for two and a half hours. There's a button to to click to sign up to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted. And I think that's just about all the important things. Just go to BatGap.com, check it all out. Follow links from there to David's website. He has a lot to offer there. And uh, I hope that this has been a good introduction to the Course in Miracles for those who are unfamiliar with it, and a good little taste of some more advanced topics for those who are experts at it. Beautiful. So great. Thanks, David.
1: Thank you. It's been such a blessing.
0: Yeah. And uh, thanks to those who've been listening or watching, and we'll see you next week.